Greetings from the Seventh Circle. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the Seventh Circle of Film. I'm your host, Kieran, and joining me as always is Stefan. How you doing, man? Hey, not too bad. First time we've actually got a proper intro. It's feeling all professional and stuff. It's terrifying. Yeah, that part was professional. Now comes the three, four hours of clusterfuck. <laughs> On the note of professionalism, I think this is the first time ever we've actually been, can I say relevant? Vaguely topical, we're off by about a month, but hey-ho, uh, the new Wonder Woman film, 1984, came out December, I think it was Christmas Day, all about wishes, and uh, had a creepy scene where some guy was possessed by some other thing, which uh, actually comes up in Wishmaster 3. Right, well, no point delaying getting to standard director Cass and Christoph, so... First film, directed by Robert Kurtzman, who usually is a special effects artist, worked on a load of really good stuff. A uh, favourite of mine being Bubba Hotep, which is a Bruce Campbell film, done by Don Cossarelli, who did all the Phantasm stuff. He's in the film as well, killed by a piano, part of the way through. A lot of the cast and crew were, apparently. Written by Peter Atkins, who's good friends with Clive Barker, come from Liverpool, has started a theatre camp with them. He helped write Hellraiser 1 and 2, uh, obviously adapted from the classic Clive Barker book. Now, yeah, when we come to actual cast and crew, I've separated these into two little boxes. Uh, there's the standard actors, so starting with Tammy Lauren, who otherwise known for The Last Flight of Noah's Ark and a film called I Saw What You Did. Jenny O'Hara, who plays the, not drama teacher, the folklore woman, the... Uh, Professor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, only film I recognised her from was she played the old woman in a M. Night Shyamalan film called Devil. Uh, played the actual devil in that. And then star of the show by Country Mile, Andrew Divoff. Dervoff? Really should have run that for a translator. I have to get one wrong, at least once an episode. Also in Toy Soldiers and is only involved with the film because he was mates with Robert Kurtzman, the director... And he was called on, not quite last minute, but uh, Robert Kurtzman basically recommended him along. Talk about a lucky break. Robert Kurtzman himself recommended along by Sam Raimi. So, of the other actors, who I've put cameo, but a lot of them are in it for a shitload of the film. So, it's basically uh, kind of expendables of horror. You just get go through and you see the stars of each era come up. So, starting off with Robert Ungland, who... Of course, known for Nightmare on Elm Street, who's in it quite a lot, plays the museum creator. Uh, Tony Todd from Candyman fame, who plays the security guard. Angus Grimm from Phantasm, the tall man, who does the narration at the start. Kane Hodder, Jason from Friday the 13th, a couple of them. He plays the security guard, who opens up for the gin. Reggie Bannister, uh, also in Phantasm, plays the chemist. Ted Raimi, who's in Evil Dead, Midnight Meat Train, plays the unfortunate assistant of Robert Ungland. Uh, Tom Savini, who I only caught on a fourth viewing, plays the pharmacy customer. And Joe Pilato, who, of course, Day of the Dead's Captain Rhodes, who uh, gets disemboweled beautifully in that film, plays the drunk dock worker who starts the whole thing. Wow, that is quite the list. Yeah, I know half of the names on that list. I It's really bad because, well, as you probably all know by now, I don't watch a lot of films. So 
probably having me on this podcast is probably the bad thing to do, but I like watching films, and you see, you guys seem to like it, so I'm okay with it. But like, I'm not much of a uh, as as Kieran is more of a he's more of a connoisseur of this kind of stuff than I am. I know Rob England, obviously, obviously, um, Freddie. Yeah, Freddy. Uh, I know Ted Raimi because I know he's Sam Raimi's brother, and I've seen the Evil Dead's. Pretty much everyone else on this list, eh? I've seen them in things, I think. So you don't know Candyman, you don't know Phantasm, yet you waste your time on Wishmaster three and four. Hey, <laughs> I like B movies, but that was beyond. This was uh, a struggle for even me, to be fair. Plus, I had to watch it for this. That's my excuse. If I watch a bad film now, I'm going to be like, yeah, I watched it for the podcast. It's fine. Well, I'm glad at least I provide an excuse for you wasting your limited time on this earth. It's what I do. So I think this is one of the first films where we've actually had a decent budget uh, for the filming. Starts off at five million for the first film and steadily decreases as we go down. Really? You couldn't tell. Actually, it probably goes down a bit more in the second <laughs> film you'd expect, to be fair. The third and fourth film, Jesus, it takes one hell of a dip. So it took 33 days to film, a couple issues during the filming. Someone stole all the cameras halfway through the shoot. They had to rent a load, borrow some from another project. Quite fraught with uh, issues, the filming. Given it was 33 days, it's a marvel they got it as good and as quickly as they did. Yeah, that is actually quite surprising. I I thought, because you've got written down in the notes... Someone stole all the cameras. I literally thought, okay, we've finished filming. I'm just going to take the cameras. But if it was mid-film, then... And it still took 33 days. That's pretty impressive. So, we go through one of the traditions of film, a horror staple, which is the expository narration. Not that I'm going to complain this time, because it's done by Angus Scrim. Phantasm. And it's got that beautiful, deep voice... And it, yeah, I could just sit there and listen to it audiobook style, the whole film length. Uh, so we're told the gin, not the standard Robin Williams creative fun genie, more the evil old stories that you hear about the gin, the ones that twist your wishes and destroy you from within. So gin born from fire, born from chaos, and a gin, once it's given three wishes to its master, it unleashes all the other djinn onto the world to do as they wish, presumably destroying it as we find out the djinn are pricks. Yeah, just a little bit of an understatement. So the actual first dialogue in the film start off with a king saying, I want you to show me wonders. And then best actor in the film, best voice in the film, Dervoff saying, as you wish, in a kind of beautiful Palpatine-esque voice. I can't do it justice at all. He seemed a bit pem- uh, Emperor Palpatine in that. Because you don't see his face, he looks like a wrinkled ball sack. He's wearing a hood, and he had the exact same voice. So I was like, oh, we're watching Star Wars in medieval Persia? Yeah, I put medieval Persia. I thought it was more just generic Arabic medieval. Yeah. It works fine, though. So after that, complete chaos is unleashed. And uh, you really see where Robert Kurtzman got his special effects background, and he puts it into his own directing. Because, my God, is it beautiful. And the amount of stuff that actually happens, not all of it's you know, perfectly done, not all of it looks amazing. It doesn't hold up to the today's standards. Mm. But the creativity in what happens to each and every person, I've got a couple things. 
Running down is some of my favourites. So a person gets thrown against a stone wall and moulds into the stone. You can still see their expression. A slight little divot in the stone where their body is. A skeleton escaped from the host body and you get to see every little bit of flesh being torn open as a hand comes out and a skull just pierces through their face. A killer crocs, moron cousin, starts wading along, kind of like a salamander, dragging itself by the feet and desperately cries to the priest to save them all. It is just absolutely beautiful chaos that no no i think it is topped later but it really sets the scene wonderfully yeah there's there's a bit in it where well literally that first scene the sorcerer or like a wizard looking dude is running through this whole thing like jafar and um he kind of he's running through this chaos everyone around him literally just standing around minding their own business and then all this chaos happens but nothing happens to him i don't know if that's the case i think the the gin says it so it might just be uh unreliable narration yeah he maybe. says that magic's gone from the world and there's nothing you can take from that and no none of the old archaic magic systems that you can hold on to to try to battle him, uh, which slightly disproven in the second film because they do the same kind of thing. Maybe it's just that the uh, the Jafar-looking guy was pure of heart, innocent. So the sorcerer uh, continues running through all this chaos, eventually gets to the king's room. You see the king on the chair next to him, Palpatine-looking guy, staring over, just maniacally putting his fingers together. You almost expect an evil laugh to come out. It's just it's just beautiful. Just perfect cheesy horror. There's a lot of guards that are lining up the room as well. And the sorcerer does something which I wouldn't call intelligent. He knows this is a big situation. He knows what's going to happen if there's a third wish. The djinn come onto the earth and everything's destroyed. There's nothing you can do at that point. Uh, and so the sorcerer decides first for some reason to plead with the king to not make another wish. When at any point during this, as you find out, he can just grab out a stone, start chanting off some Arabic, and the djinn will just go into the stone without any issues. If it were me, I'd start with that. You'd open up with your your biggest chance of success. If, if your king has already wasted two stupid wishes and he's dumb enough to make a third, I'd probably just be like, yeah, I'll just pull out the stone, it's fine. I'd understand if the king was like, all right, you do this, I will kill you, sort of thing, or whatnot. Because then I'd understand a bit of hesitation with it, just like, yeah, okay, just don't do the third wish then, but I don't know. Yeah, it's it's more effective, and just on the off chance the king tries to do something stupid and tries to wish it all away, anything, just deal with it then and there, cut to the chase, get rid of any uh, possible issues. Yeah. Thankfully, the king sits there like a coward on his throne, uh, curls up into the corner, while the sorcerer gets out this fire opal that's got to be about the size of an eye. Huge thing. And starts chanting away. And the djinn looks mortified, starts being sucked into this opal. And then we cut to modern day. So, in modern times, there's a ship on a dockyard and find out that the statue that this jewel was placed in, a pre-Islamic, I can't remember the name of the gods they worship, but pre-Islamic gods in this region, and a large statue that the stone was placed in the centre of. It's being handled on a crane over a large boat system. You see Robert Ungland and his little assistant, Ted Raimi, start running around without hard hats, which 
Yeah, the... I, don't, I don't know. Is it a problem later, or would he be dead anyway? I'm not sure how much a hard hat will actually help with this situation. <laughs> I remember it, it's like Arem Mazda or some shit like that, because I remember it being named after a car. Wor- worst cars you could have named after. Yeah. The Reliant Zada, Robin Zada. Joe Palladio plays the currently drunk dock worker, and he's messing about with the controls. The crane is going about like fucking mad. He's smacking it on the end, which I think that's you getting fired immediately after you've smacked some ancient Mesopotamian fucking statue against the side of a ship. Yeah, just a, just a little. If someone's like, okay, this isn't like an antique, like third century fucking whatever, and it costs more than you, this entire ship and the entire crew. Then um, you you smash it up against the side of your freighter. Yeah, I think you've lost your job and probably lost everyone else their job. Yeah, it smacks it on. Ted Raimi runs over, said hard hatless. And this dock worker begins bringing the the box overhead. But you work, you work at a factory, don't you, Steph? Yeah. I don't know if you have cranes and stuff going overhead. Yeah. When I did working one temporarily, uh, the last thing you do is put a crane overhead. In fact, if you do that, that's it. You're not only going, you know, you're not only going to lose your job, you're possibly getting done for something. You're in big shit. You will hear swear words that you never thought existed if you put a crane above someone's head. Yeah. Most people know when a crane is moving, maybe don't run at the crane while it's lifting heavy objects. I mean, it in that scene alone, it was kind of like a, well, both of the people here were fucking idiots, so... Eh? Always found Ted Raimi is kind of like the uh, Sean Bean of Horror World. Seems to get killed off at every possible opportunity in these really outlandish ways. It's great. In this one, he's just crushed like a perfect little Tetris piece, erasing him from the world. Just drops down on his head as Joe Palladio drops his coffee and beer, spills out all over the controls. The crane releases, box falls down. And you just see a little bit of a splatter of blood and the statue falling out against the dock work. Poor uh, Ted Raimi looks up in horror. As I said, he's just deleted from the world. I don't know whether a hard hat would have helped there. No, I don't think it would have. I don't think a giant statue falling onto your entire body would uh, really protect you from death. Robert Ungland looks mildly annoyed. This whole goings on. Oh, you find out later, to be fair, that he didn't give a fuck about his assistant and he more cares about the fact that the statue's been destroyed. Yeah. Like, to be fair, he probably paid millions to get this uh, statue across the seas and onto the US and whatnot. I think I'd be slightly more than just annoyed. Maybe he's got more money than sense and he's fine with it, but. I don't know, I was like, okay, I've just paid millions. Fair enough, someone's just died too. I'd be doubly pissed. It Literally, the look on his face is like, you've just shat on my carpet, what the fuck? It's more a kind of, yeah, I've got so much paperwork I'm going to have to file because of this shit, then I've just lost millions yeah. and my assistant's dead. <laughs> I'm going to have to hire someone else now. <laughs> so through the rubble, the dock workers try to save poor Ted, probably. A bit late, lads. Uh, and dock worker, while going through the rubble, finds the fire opal that the sorcerer trapped the gin in earlier. Again, kind of the size of the guy's eye. 
uh, which I'll be, I'll be worried about stealing personally as a dock worker. Something this big, I take the presumption that they know it's in here. And if you steal this, that's going to be the police and the FBI and fucking everything after you. That's kind of that classic, if there was a million dollar case in the middle of nowhere, would you steal it? Yeah. Like, at some point it's like, okay, you just found a million dollars in the briefcase. Maybe it's a, like, someone's watching it and stashed it there to, like, alright, the police are here. But with this, it looks like it came, obviously the statue's cracked and broken and whatnot. It looks like it has fallen out from the inside of, like, I don't know how a dock worker's, like, quick brain function would work, but I don't know if it'd be like, okay, that that statue's broken in half, that's a shattered piece of it, looks like the stone was inside, let's put it in my pocket. It could be more like a magpie, just, ooh, shiny. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, that's what I'm thinking it is, it's like, oh, quick money, boop. Yeah, he takes it as all the chaos goes on and then we cut to uh, Alex and Josh uh, they're playing tennis Alex our main character through this played by Tammy Lauren very well I should add certainly the best of the main feminine leads through the rest of the series not that that's much of an achievement granted but she does do very well certainly against Andrew Dervov uh, she kind of acts as the the straight man in a way yeah she was probably the best female lead in the entirety of these films because I fucking hated everyone else. Yeah, she's playing uh, tennis with her, not co-worker, but friend, I think, that she occasionally sends Jules to to do more analyses on. And yet we start one of the weirdest franchise themes that's in, I think, all four of them, which is the friend who's placed in the friend zone at the start of the film and then comes out of it by the end of the film. It's in the first film you have Alex and Josh. Mm-hmm. The second film you have the priest and Morgana. Third film you have the really creepy lecturer and student. Fourth film, I will get to that when we get to it, but it's pretty much the entirety of the film. <laughs> yeah. And I just thought it was a bit weird to theme an entire franchise around the friend zone. Uh, yeah, this guy, poor half-handing guy, tries to ask her out fails and they go off in their separate directions uh, we then cut to alex's workplace where an auctioneer who's the most generic looking stereotype i've ever seen in my life he has gold chains that particular haircut that if I remember rightly adam sandler uh, had in that film he was in uncut gems that sleaze bag just enough effort into it just too much hair gel in it yeah. To make it off-putting. I know I've seen him in other stuff, and he plays... I think he plays the exact same role in every film. Not an auctioneer, just a douchebag, douche-looking guy. Yeah, he was perfect for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, If you showed me that guy with that haircut, I'd either be thinking, right, he's an auctioneer, sleazebag auctioneer, or he's a mafia enforcer. One of the two. Kind of those guys that sell you watches and shit. He looks like a scam artist, that's the best way of doing it. He looks like you know, the kind of guy that sells you discount clothes on the outside or cut watches or whatever that you try not to deal with if you can help it. Yeah. That certain type of sleeve bag. A uh, used car salesman. Oh, fuck that. That's a perfect way of doing it. Yeah. A gem's brought in by a pawn shop owner who uh, comes up, passes them and sells it on to them. Uh, asks for its provenance and all that, which basically the history of the whole thing. And as I learnt looking up this, if it has no history, if it has no provenance, then it has 
really little value, which might kind of discount the whole uh, Dead Snow coin thing. They might have been a little worthless. To be fair, you probably knew what they were because half of the gold in there was Kruger ends anyway, so you'd be like, okay, Nazis. No, actually, that's fair. Dock worker, you find out like, that the dock worker sold at the pawn shop for a couple hundred, and I asked around to see if that was a reasonable amount. And most of the people I asked, I said, yeah, actually, you don't know where it's from. It's probably stolen. You're not going to get much more for that. You're not going to be able to sell it direct to an auction house or anything. So a couple hundred, he actually got a pretty good deal on that. Yeah, it's sold off to them. And Alex works here and she basically uh, deals with the ins and outs of looking through it, examining it, valuing it to be sold off on auction. Before that, uh, she goes through a basketball game. Yeah, yeah, she's reviewing it and she's she breathes on it and rubs it with cloth and all that bollocks. She starts reviewing it, kind of checking out its size, diameter, seeing, I don't know, luminosity. I don't know how you review gems. I'd have thought big, red, doesn't look like it's got any cracks in it, probably worth a bit. I, I, I know some things about, like, diamonds, so it's like colour, cut, and clarity. So... I don't know how that would be for like giant ruby fucking fist side ge- fist sized gems, but yeah, she goes looking through it. She she notices something under a mi- microscope, like a little black dot in the center of it. So she takes it back out, breathes on it, starts rubbing it, and puts it back in. She starts hearing voices, and then she goes to sends it off to Josh, who does his science on it, and um. That's when she goes to the basketball game. After again, friend zoning Josh. Yeah, hands it off to Josh for him to yeah examine with science, <laughs> whatever the machine was. Yeah, he literally just shines lasers at it, and it's like yeah, that's good enough. At the basketball game, she goes I think twice during the film, and she gives them two pieces of advice. One is stillness, where you lessen your awareness of the players around you, of everything else, and you just focus on yourself and the hoop, which is bullshit advice. I can tell you someone who's played at least cricket and football, I know that in those two, if you're getting a ball bowled at you, you need to know where the fielders are, you need to know how the ball's going to be bowled at you, you need to know where you're going to hit it, how hard you're going to hit it. There's so much shit you have to do. And with football, you need to know where the defenders are, you need to know where the goalkeeper's going to go, where you can hit it from, how the fucking wind is. There's so much shit you're going to have to know before you kick it. It's rubbish. Even less relevant when you're battling an ancient, evil, magical demon. Uh, And she constantly, through this film, uses advice you've given to her basketball players in an actual, real-life situation while battling a magical demon. These things don't fucking relate. Basketball and fighting ancient evils. And you've got uh, the other piece of advice she gives, which is to know your enemy. It's the most fucking empty platitude she's telling this to a basketball team of like uh like school-aged girls because she's the coach know your enemy is probably not on their list of things to do when they're playing a game of basketball against another team just because like okay yeah look up the if they're decent or whatnot but you're not going to be like all right i'm gonna like what is your weakness i am going to kill you sort of thing yeah all right so we know that Claire, she uh, had a few injuries on her leg. So what I want you to do is to kick the shit out of yeah, it we want you, and watch you, Claire cry on the ground. Yeah. When you when you uh, have no eyes on you, you just jump into her ankle. You know what I mean? Just 
She's sensitive about her weight, colour, <laughs> from off crying the corner. Outside the basketball, cut back to Josh, who is analysing this crystal and sees what he presumes to be an imperfection or something. He's a bit confused by it. Uh, and we find out that it's pretty much a kind of TARDIS-esque house that the djinn lives in. This dimension, uh, it's kind of just a mass of red corridors uh, with a little throne and some demon dogs. It looks like the inside of someone's intestine when you're doing like endoscopy. And the, whatever he does with the lasers or possibly the breathing from Alex earlier unleashes the djinn onto the world. The djinn comes out of the crystal as what I've put as a kind of Mars attacks fetus, he looks like. He's crawling on the ground. Looks uh, looks shitty. He's kind of at stage one of everything. Comes out of the crystal. Everything kind of blows up. Josh falls to the ground all bloody in pain. Uh, and Josh, while he's sobbing there, crying the gin with that beautiful gravelly voice, says, do you wish your suffering to end? And Josh comes up with a, uh, yes, please end my suffering. At which point, the gin seems to make his suffering a thousand times fucking worse. As you hear Josh screaming endlessly. Yeah. I'd feel like his suffering could be ended a bit more efficiently than that, but hey ho, you're the wishmaster, I suppose. You know how this shit goes. Like at some at this point, if someone's like, Oh, do you want me to end your suffering? I think you know what that means. I don't think he was like, Yeah, just kill me. It's less that, it's just more that he put him through more suffering. Yeah. Which seems like the antithesis of what he actually wanted. Uh but through the start of this film, you see that Jin, as he gives wishes, he expands in power. Uh, so he evolves from this Mars tax fetus into what looks kind of like a fetid green goblin from the uh, the most recent Andrew Garfield films. Mm-hmm. Slightly more texture to him than that. Looks slightly better, to be fair. Uh, and the Jin, this what yeah, he's going around. He's moving street to street, and he's trying to gain back his power before he starts the attempt at fulfilling the prophecy and getting the free wishes from the wishmaker. Of the same evening, slightly later on, the police arrive. They you know, close off the scene where Josh is dead. They hold everything off. Alex ends up arriving on the police scene. The police put it down as an equipment malfunction. I want to know what fucking equipment he was using to cause that much of an explosion that's readily write-offable of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it just exploded. It- they, you know, these fucking machines that we put Semtex in, fuck knows why it exploded. Goes to the Acme School of Production. Yeah. So she turns up at Alex's workplace because she has like a vision during the basketball game. And then she's like, ah, and then runs all the way to the fucking place of work. And then obviously goes in, sees all the police, assumes he's dead. To be fair, when you say that she just goes, eh. It's a lot better than it is later. She, yeah, she passes out. She has a proper fit. She goes into a uh, almost a little malfunction. Later on, they seem to just get a little bit of an annoyed headache in the uh, third and fourth film, especially. Yeah. In this one, you can see that she's actually scared and she's actually feeling some physical pain. Yeah. From looking at the wishes this guy's handing out. Uh, all down to Tammy Lauren's performance. Yeah, the police uh, get her details, Alex's details down, and then she ends up running off after she undergoes another one of her little experiences as the djinn continues his 
violent streak across the city, which get to now. So the Jin at this point, looking slightly better than he was earlier, he ends up in a alleyway. Uh, you cut to a homeless man who's standing outside of a pharmacy. There's a woman who's going in, the homeless man. It's fair to say harassing her, asking her for money over and over again. Uh, in that kind of friendly manner, I do quite like him. He seems to be a cheeky little bastard, <laughs> as you know. He'll take a one dollar if you don't have any change. I'll take a five. Yeah, and he'll wait for her. Yeah, he's, he's amusing. I think he's been in a few things as well. Yeah, I did notice I think, him from a few things. I think they live. He was in at some point the old John Carpenter film about uh, consumerism in the eighties. The pharmacist whose actor also appeared in Phantasm comes out and tries to jog him off. Clearly, he's been doing this for quite a while. Uh, the homeless man and the pharmacist start exchanging insults. My absolute favourite being one from the homeless man, which is did the piss complected after birth to a Chinese gangbanger, followed by educated idiot. <laughs> I think the simplicity of the second one there just adds perfectly to the first. Oh, I've got to use that at some point. That is beautiful. So the homeless man starts walking around and continues muttering to himself and insulting back and forth about pissing down a gutter and the like. And then you see the gin sitting in the corner, barely lit up, almost looks like a homeless guy against a dustbin. And then, you know, uh, goes on a, did you mean all those insults you threw? Homeless man talks back and forth with him, thinks he's a madman, but goes along with the whole thing. Yeah. Uh, eventually the homeless man sits there and thinks for a moment about what he wants. The gin says, you know, what do you want to do to your worst enemy? Homeless man Oh, only that you should get cancer and die. And I feel the gin took more focus more on the and die bit than the cancer bit because I don't know many cancers that cause that. What happens to the uh, pharmacist? I don't think I know many cancers that like visibly melt skin and give them like pox and shit. It was he died in a matter of seconds. I don't think cancer works that fast. I feel it was more a, um, we give him flesh-eating bacteria and he happens to have pancreatic cancer as well. <laughs> We're just going to put this little tumour in your stomach, but don't worry, it won't kill you. Something else will. Uh, oh, yes, you've said Tom Savini comes up at this point, one of the uh, one of the shoppers who quickly looks on the pharmacist. Only in it for a couple of seconds, but anything with Tom Savini and I'll have to mention. So the gin at this point, it's kind of evolved back to his Palpatine level of lookalike. And the uh, homeless man sees what's happened to the pharmacist, sees the gin, and starts running down the street screaming, at having given his soul. That's what happens whenever you trade for a wish in this film. You give your soul, willing or not. There's a lot of points in this film where no one really says, I wish. Yeah, it's literally, he, he says, hey, what do you want? And someone's like, I want you to get out of my way. That's your soul gone. It's unfortunate, but fine for me. It's an all-powerful magical being. There's a oh yeah, I'll, I'll let it off. There's already enough rules that you've got to stick by. You might as well make it a bit easier on yourself. And get rid of the I wish part, which for some reason the third and fourth film they stuck to quite stringently. Yeah. Made it far harder themselves. I don't know if it's if it's supposed to be the same Wishmaster but they look completely different after 2 and, th well like from 2 and 3. Yeah, I did wonder if that was the reason kind of the rules changed because the Wishmaster's changed. I'd assume so. One's got testicles for ears so. 
<laughs> but we'll get to that. So with the Jin having regained almost full strength at this point, go down to Alex, who now you find a big problem with the first and the second film is the third and the fourth film are just terrible, 100%. problem with the first and the second is that the human side of it, the human story, is by far and away the least interesting, the least interesting uh, part of the whole thing. When you cut to Alex, which is slightly less annoying than cutting to Morgana in the second film, the film just slows down. It gets a bit meh. It's obviously, you're watching this just to see Andrew Dervov do his stuff. Yeah, you're basically watching it to watch the gin, and then it kind of switches back to her and she's just like, okay, can you tell me about the gin? Have the gin tell you about the gin? You kind of, if you show us the gin doing his thing, fair enough. You'll get to know the gin. I think at least in the first film they rectify it a little bit by having the gin explain a bit about himself uh, in the form of the old woman, but he that old woman does a really good fucking job at channeling that element of sarcasm and entitlement later on. Uh, but with Alex then, cutting to her after the gin deals with the pharmacist, uh, find out Alex's, I think it's his mom that died in a fire at some point. No, I, th- I think past. it's both parents died in a fire and she was only able to rescue her sister, but she was in therapy for years because she couldn't, she was like... Yeah, but I should have gone and rescued mum and dad, from what from what I understood. Uh, yeah, it's certainly a shitty way of certainly a, a shitty childhood, which they try to try to recreate in the third film badly, really, yeah, really badly. There's no activeness in the third film; it's all very passive. She's more a damsel in distress that throws the side. In this one, obviously, she saved her sister. She was very active, and it kind of adds to her character. Because through the film, she does actively go out and try to do shit tries to find out as much as she can and tries to fight the djinn the best way she knows how uh, talking about that actually, following this she comes up with a plan to try to find as much about the fire opal as possible she begins by going to the pawn shop off screen, asks where he got it from the guy rats out after threat of a lawsuit then she goes back to the docks and finds the sleaziest dock worker you've ever seen in your life that <laughs> uh, hit Hits on her almost immediately, uh, which, yeah, it's understandable. Yeah. I know they exist, people like that are out there. It's a fun little thing. They go back and forth a bit, and she basically finds out that the dock worker knows bugger all beyond that it came from that statue. Yeah, she finds out that uh, basically Robert Unglund's character in this is the one that had the. or who owned the statue, and he's the. Um, he's the main reason why the gem is here and that gives her another lead to follow so then coming back and it does eventually converge but we do cut back and forth between the gin and alex for quite a bit mm-hmm. the gin ends up at the morgue uh, which seems to have the least amount of security i've ever seen in my life when i was on uni when i was at uni you had to scan in a card to get in and all of that there was security there as well there were people watching cameras and shit and that was just for like the library that was just for the coffee shop. I can't imagine how much security you'd have to put against a morgue, but apparently this place, fucking nothing. There's some homeless man dressed in garbs, which is basically what the gin is at this point, that managed to walk through completely uh, unstopped, completely untested. Yeah, he hasn't even taken a face at this point. He's literally just a green guy with like tattered cloak and robes walking in from the street. 
And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. It's like a necrophiliac's wet dream made reality. The Virginia walks into a morgue, a kind of a student place where they are dissecting and autopsying stuff for, I don't know, coronary school. Uh, he goes up to one of the bodies on the morgue slab, starts chopping its face up, and a uh, ginger afro student walks in, starts going on about teachers' pets and stuff, notices what the gin is doing, notices that they're actually a gin. He panics quite a bit, and the gin, is this something you would rather not see? You hear a little uh-huh and nodding, and then... So Robert Kurtzman directs this, so he knows how visual effects work, which is seen just throughout the entirety of it. It is beautiful. Whereas eyes twist inside out rather than something like popping out. I've never seen them properly just twist around. And you see the flesh underneath. It looks kind of like a rotted prune uh, in his two eye sockets. And the kid like screams, can't see, can't see. Oh, it is beautiful. Loses his soul for that. Wouldn't call that a fair trade personally, but hey-ho. Yeah. I thought it literally cut to the gin and then cut back to the dude where he'd like the skin had grown back over his eyes. Yeah, he cuts back and forth a bit, a bit of editing trick. I don't know if it was just his eyes twisting around or it was skin growing over. It looked good either, either way. way it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, it looks really nice. Uh, and the guy, yeah, panics, starts running around. The gin cuts off the face of the body beneath him uh, and then uses it as a kind of camouflage and best actor in the entire franchise properly introduced. Andrew Derov, I think it's safe to say, uh, can be called a horror icon at this point, alongside the tall man. If the tall man from Phantasm can be called a horror icon, then Andrew Derov can. Alongside, you know, Ghostface from Scream, alongside Freddy Krueger from Nightmare on Elm Street. Am I taking that too far? It's unique. I wouldn't really say iconic. I I mean, it's... I think I've said this before. This... I've watched the first one. This is the first like horror film that I've known about coming in, into it, if you know what I mean. It never it never stands out. It's always for me these films were like eh, I wouldn't really say they were horror, really. That's fair. I think it occupies a space that very few films did in the 90s. Yeah, uh, outside of the self-awareness of Scream. And the torch porn stuff we talked about with the hostels and the cubes and the like. Uh, it occupies that cheesy horror area that I don't think ever really had its day in the sun properly. I don't think it ever really had its heyday. Uh, it was the 80s. Possibly, possibly actually, no. In the 80s where you had Nightmare on Elm Street, I think that's the closest that cheesy horror has come to being mainstream. Maybe it's more I wish he was. Yeah, I th- I'm gonna, I think he's more on the level of maybe Isaac from Children of the Corn. And Chucky. Yeah. And uh, possibly the Puppet Master lot. Yeah, yeah. And Pinhead. Possibly not yet. Not Freddy, Jason, Michael. But kind of that one rung lower that I, I probably love even more than the top three. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I, I adore cheesy horror. Like Charles Play and Puppet Master. But yeah. Talking about iconicness, his, his backstory is given to us again through the mantle of Alex. Through an exposition mentor. Uh, who I actually like. I don't usually like the trope of the old, wizened, learned professor. But in this case, it's a really sassy prick of a woman who's just perfectly cast. Uh, She's messing with a drama play from some students. She's the folklore expert. And she's just basically sending the students to put shit 
here, there and everywhere on the stage. She has no idea what she's doing. She's just messing with them pretty much. Uh, says as much, which I absolutely adore. If you can mess around with drama students and just annoy them, just use your power for evil. Beautiful, that kind of petty evil. Uh, she starts talking to Alex and giving her details on how the gin works. And the basis is that the gin aren't the friendly, fun-loving Robin Williams types from Aladdin, but rather the actual mythological uh, side of stuff. Yeah. Which, by the looks of it, as I was just quickly reading up on some of the myths you go, which there, there are hundreds of, there's Chinese stuff, there's a few Greek things, uh, all of which are evil as shit. The general idea is, you know, you, you have to put in hard work to get what you want in life, you can't just wish for it. Uh, you get stuff like King Midas, yeah, you know, all sorts of myths out there where someone wishes for something, gets it, and then, oh, lo and behold, there are downsides. All evil. During which we're given a little demonstration. Dude that clearly's walked in in his rags and, okay, he's got a human face now, I suppose, but he's clearly walked in with, in rags. So he goes up to this pretty cashier and he's like all right can i have a suit she's like yep sweet looks like you can pay for this and then obviously i i assume this is what happens you don't see this bit but it cuts to him turning around from the a mirror him dressed in a blue and black suit and he's like got this shit-eating grin on his face the entire time um woman again uh okay do you want to come over to the counter so you can pay Sweet, because it looked like you could pay. Um, well, she st- he starts off by asking if she'd rather cash or credit. Cash or what was it now? Uh, cash or check? Oh, yeah, cash or check. What he starts with? Yeah, I suppose it's 90s, 92, I think. 96. No, it's late 90s, I think. 96. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I don't think I've ever used check. Yeah, I... I might, might be too young for that one. Yeah, I've never used a check myself. Might be an American thing, but yeah, ask for cash or check, which I think to really uh, hit home the point of him having no money, if at any point she said, I don't care, then he'd have had to just slink out with his tattered rags on again. Yeah. Because he did have no money. She says cash. He magics a load of notes uh, in her breasts. Oh, yeah. She picks out and finds charming in a kind of... um, Sleaze bag, pervert, magician kind of way. Yeah, this beautiful cashier is finding this creepy-looking homeless dude attracting, and uh, when he magics cash into her bra, she's like, "Okay, I'm probably gonna go home with him." And then he asks about her beauty and blah blah blah, asks if she'd want it to last forever, and then he turns her into a mannequin behind the counter, and then just fucks off anyway. Yeah, it's quite a fun little scene. Though, the poor girl looks really confused as she starts going on this monologue about how your beauty's going to fade, you're going to one day be ugly, which is a bit harsh. Yeah, at this point, I'm like, dude, just fucking pay for, my, pay for the suit and fuck off. Yeah. Anyone <laughs> who's worked a minimum wage job has got to know at that point that anyone in their right mind would be, mate, I've been here for four hours, I've dealt with customers all day, I don't need you insulting me, fuck off. You came in in rags, you think I'm ugly, fuck you. To be fair, that's the best part of Andrew Dervov. He gives off this uh, kind of atmosphere around him of a sleazebag, definitely, but with the most innate charisma possible. Yeah, 
it's kind of entrancing how he's at one point you don't want to go near him he looks dangerous but at the same time he's so charismatic that you can't help it yeah it's it's more in the second film that i've noticed he just has creepy charisma but in the in the in the first one it's less uh I feel it's less pushed in your face there's only like little hints of it here and there whereas in the second one it's just literally the entire film of creepy charisma we just gets more time in the second film yeah so yeah, with that he yeah he then leaves. He's in a suit. He's ready for the world. The gin ends up in a police office. So cut back and forth between Alex and the gin. Every time the gin does something to a person, Alex seems to be knocked unconscious, falls to the ground. And during this point, obviously she's with the uh, folk professor. She's at least kind of gone out of it. You know, kind of goes clear-headed. Yeah. Right, so with all the fashion stuff, after that's been dealt with and the gin's walking out with his good suit, Alex has been uh, back and forth. She originally with uh, Bermont, who played by Robert Ungland, and then eventually went to the folk professor later on his recommendation. Uh, Robert Ungland is in this quite a bit, actually, which is a delight. Yeah. He's very chatty in film and apparently very chatty in real life i've had friends who lucky enough to meet the guy uh very nice and yeah he, he really hams it up a bit he brings that perfect i don't want to say sleaze back again but the the rich snob the rich arrogant snob it seems like he's also interested in alex and he's like yeah i'm trying to get into your pants and if not yours i'll i'll take your little sister or i'll uh i'll happily date your little sister as well yeah i'll make do yeah i'll make do for your little sister sort of thing but he he's he's convincingly a a, a rich guy dickhead snub kind of character so i can believe that alex ends up passing out his during the whole fashion scene and then later on uh she's talking with the folklore woman with the drama stuff going on, she passes out again, during which uh, the djinn is dealing with the police. The djinn at this point, he knows innately who's woke him. He knows who she is. He's connected on some level. Doesn't know where she lives. Needs to find as much information as possible. Ends up going to the local police sector. Sits down with the detective from earlier who dealt with the case. And says it quite a lot. It's less that he says this quite a lot. Where it's the person doesn't know him, but Alex is expecting him. Which is as creepy as it sounds on this podcast as it is in the film. And no one, absolutely no one buys it and tells him to fuck off every time. Yeah. Without fail. During this whole exchange with the gin and the police chief, the police chief's kind of staring around and looks towards a homeless looking individual. A, a, a thug, a bit of a shithead. Looks a bit twitchy. Yeah, he's sitting at a table, clearly getting, like, interviewed... Not interviewed, but, like, uh, interrogated about some crime that he possibly committed. And it, the police that uh, the gin is talking to is kind of saying, um, okay, it looks like he might be getting off with this. He might be a uh, scot-free sort of thing. And then um, he says, I wish just once that we caught and like he did something and we were there and there was loads of witnesses and then the dude the criminal dude literally starts going haywire um 
grabs the a gun from one of the cops that is uh, being interrogated by shoots like three people and then gets held down but he's like super strong because obviously Jin ends up ripping a guy's jaw fucking off I think what happens is he goes starts shooting off at people uh, kills two people ends up getting held down the Jin realises when he hears handcuffs that oh shit they've held him down they've secured him and the Jin then empowers him with more strength to be able to with more strength to be able to create more of a distraction He's obviously within the confines of the wish given. The only end of is that the guy must be caught red-handed and have killed people, eyewitnesses everywhere. So Jin could do what the fuck he wanted Yeah. at that point and empower the guy however he wished. And this guy, yeah, rips a jaw off and you see the little tongue waggling about. Yeah. Which uh, I'm, I'm going to... I'm trying now, pulling down on my teeth as hard as I can. I'm not getting close to that. You'd think it'd come up with a couple red flags of holy shit, some guy ripped a jaw off. We need to get fucking scientists in on this. We need to analyse this with science. The police officer that was talking to the djinn turns around, sees the djinn kind of going through his notes on looking for Alex's home address. So, yeah, uh, the djinn ends up finding, not a home address, but a little business card for the auction house that she works at. That was it, yeah. Finds the auction card, and that's when the djinn basically... I don't know if he empowers the the criminal further, but he the criminal kind of throws everyone off and um, kind of standing in the open, like arms wide out, and he gets shot by like three different police officers. Yeah, he gets shot about seven times. Yeah, smiles for a moment, then drops down dead. And then they turn around, and the gin's gone. At least he's still got his soul. Turned out better than some. Yeah, the the criminal still has his soul. He's he's dead, but he had his soul. <laughs> So, yeah, Alex starts unconscious again at this point, finishes off the conversation with the experienced mentor, and Alex, I presume, ends up going back home for the time being. As we cut to, again, the gin who's doing more fun stuff, he's going towards the auction house, currently out of hours, and Kane Hodder, who, if I remember rightly, played Voorhees in film four and six. Hmm. I think the one with Corey Feldman. He was in more, I know, he was in more of them than anyone else. Stuntman as well. Really big guy. Uh, yeah, Kane Hodder, who gets to show his face this time at least. He uh, stands in front of a door. He's guarding it, a glass pane, really. The gin starts walking up, confident that arrogance in his step. That little creepy smile piercing up. And Kane Hodder you know, tells him to fuck off, more or less, because they're after hours. The Jin asks, what would you want most? And Kane Harder responds with, what I think more people should have really through the film, if you think about it in reality. Kane Harder just responds with, I want you to leave, as you see the Jin just walking away. Yeah, the Jin being a Jin, he literally does what you say, and he starts to fuck off. If he left it there, he would have been fine. Well, you say fine. Of course, Kane Hodder has now given his soul yeah. to watch this guy walk away. That, that's actually a point. Technically, if that's the case, he gives him two wishes. Yeah, he does constantly through this. He does for the cashier. He does for others. The rules are changing in the second film completely. Yeah. Const- film by film, the rules are just completely ripped out and changed. At least in the second film, they uh, explain what the new rules are in fair detail and give you an idea. Hmm. But yeah, it, it changes point by point. Uh, 
the security guard, yeah, he then makes a little mistake. By base, yeah, he basically, uh, as the Jin's walking away, he's he gives that big macho man shit. Whereas, like, uh, I can't remember the exact words he says, but it's basically I'd love to see you walk through me. Oh, there you I go. Think. Yeah, it's something yeah. like it's like you'll have to get through me or some shit like that. And Kane Hodder, I think the Jin says himself, opens up. Really annoyed me this film because as I was going through watching it uh, and taking notes, I thought, oh, I can make a pun there. I can make a really good pun there. <laughs> and then the film does it. For fuck's sake, the little idea Kane opening up for the gin. Great. I can put that in. And then the gin says it. Yeah. Ruined it. <laughs> You've. I'm reading your notes now. You've put a second one. I had to work hard. Yeah. You can say it. I'll let you. <laughs> so. Feeling shattered, the security guard doesn't come back up. Doesn't deserve a clap, really. Yeah, that wasn't me wanking or anything. That was me clapping. (laughs) (laughs) So the djinn uh, sits down across from the sleazebag auctioneer, who's Alex's boss. The auctioneer's looking over this um, brown, what is it, cup holder or some shit? Uh, Like a, uh, a grail. Yeah, it looks like a small egg holder, an egg cup holder. And yeah, he holds it up and the gin grabs it out of his hand, which a bit rude. Yeah. Especially in an auction house where this thing is probably worth quite a bit of money, you'd expect, at least a few thousand. Yeah, um, basically he walks into the office, it's like, I want Alex's address, and the dude's like, the dickhead auctioneer is like, no. And then he's like, Okay, but what happens if I made this like ten times? Oh no, a hundred times more uh, valuable. He's like, okay, and then he does like this magician wave in front of the thing, and it's gold. Yeah, and he just uh, dips it out, and four small diamonds fall out. Yeah, that fucking bit of brown uh, grail must have been worth a shitload. Yeah, before that, if it needed four diamonds to be made out of gold and all sorts of stuff. But the auctioneer sleaze baggy ears, and I do love this little thing where he says, no, I'm not going to give you the details, uh, and forces the gin to give him a second wish, which the auctioneer at this point, I feel his imagination remarkably small as he says, I'm not a greedy man. How about a million dollars? Yeah. You're going to stop. You're going to stop there. You're an auctioneer that deals with jewels and gems all day. You know different figures. I'll go more for how about... Being the richest man on earth. Yeah. yeah. Fucking sky's the limit. Yeah, he could literally be like, he could wish for anything in that moment. And he's like, yeah, just a million dollars would be fine. How about two million? Three yeah. million? And then it cuts to a scene where his uh, his aunt is getting on the plane. Oh, it's his mum. Oh, it's his mum. Okay, yeah. his mum is getting on a plane. And for some reason, she's writing a will out at the desk. Like, who's your next uh, of kin? For... Uh, a plane or something. She's going on a plane. And because I'm sure anyone who's riding the plane knows this, they force you to write out next of kin in the details in case the plane crashes because it's common, a plane crash, obviously. Yeah, obviously. I've been on many a different plane and I don't think I've ever had to write down my next of kin on that. I nearly died on the plane once. and I've Yeah, I've never had to... The guy missed the runway and had to shoot back up. Still never had to write one down. Uh, yeah, she writes it down, and the plane, it's just basically kind of Final Destination style, cuts immediately to the plane being destroyed. Yeah, it, it like explodes mid-air, if I remember correctly. 
Yeah. Yeah, it gets to the point. We've got to give it that. Yeah. There you go. Here's a million dollars in about three months when all the legal shit has been gone through. But you'll be dead by then. So, yeah, the djinn knows where she lives at this point. The djinn knows where Alex lives at this point. Yeah. The detective phones up Alex to warn her about the djinn who's been asking questions. At which point the djinn finally takes his due and all the souls of all the people who've wished at this point drop down dead. The police chief included who mid-conversation just falls and collapses. Including the poor fucker who's had his eyes turned inside out. Yeah. Alec goes back to uh, Wendy, the folklore expert. Yeah. The djinn arrived before her, unfortunately for her, stole Wendy's body. Now. And is currently masquerading. I want to point out, she's had a vision about every wish that has been given up to this point. It has been like physically shown to you that she has this vision. I don't know whether it's the the, the gin that's like, okay, I want you to see this, so here's you seeing this. But she doesn't have a vision about the gin stealing Wendy's body and giving her that her wish. No, that's a fair point. It's, it's the the wish is something along the line of I I want to be released from my fear or something like that. Yeah. And at no point, yeah, is it shown that Alex passed out. I mean, she even passes out when she sees all the souls being um, reaved, reaped. Maybe it is because, like, there's many different reasons that this could be. Like I said, it could be the djinn that's like, I want you to see this and I don't want you to see this specific one. Or it's like, okay, once he collects the souls, you're kind of cut off from these visions sort of thing. You've, like, not connected all that much now, now that he knows where you are and um, he's coming to collect your three wishes. I'm going to hope it's the former, for the sake of consistency. Yeah. I think it's the more interesting way of doing it. Obviously, it's all uh, a script trick to have a little reveal. Mm-hmm. Guys, did you realise that it was the gin, or when did you realise it was the gin during the conversation? Uh, I think about halfway through, she starts getting a bit creepy. If I remember correctly, she like at the first bit is like she's gone. Uh, Alex has gone back to her and she's asking for information about the gin. And then at some point, she's like, "But seriously though, what what do you want? Like, what do you want us? What would you wish for?" Sort of thing. Like she kind of heavily insinuates, like, "I can give you something." Yeah, she starts off by saying, uh, "Do you want any food? Do you want anything to drink?" Do you want? Are you cold? Do you want me to turn the heating up? Which would be a really shitty ending to the film. Yeah, if it was just. You want something to eat? Yeah, I wouldn't mind some tacos. Oh, I've got some. Yeah, do you want something to drink? Yeah, I wouldn't mind a beer. Hell on earth! <laughs> you destroyed the planet with a taco, a beer, and a bit of a, a warmer temperature. AC increase, <laughs> a bit of a difference on the thermostat. Okay, that would have. I didn't actually pick up on that bit, but that would have been fucking hilarious. I think that's what she was doing. I presume because she kept on going through. Yeah, and then obviously, as you said, it gets a bit weird about halfway through where she gets more explicit. And then, uh, and I love it, the uh, actress who plays Wendy, absolutely excellent, uh, through the mantle of the gin, Mm -hmm. starts slagging everyone off (laughs) and just bigging up the gin. Great, real arrogant kind of egotistical uh, rant of the gin are amazing, there's fuck all you can do. Ha ha ha, your bone. Alex goes to leave as she realises that. 
What I shouldn't realise, Alex goes to leave as Wendy gets a bit creepy and she has enough of it all. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, I don't think, ever realises that the gin's taken over Wendy, which I think's a little naive of her, to be honest. I feel like I'd have picked up on it. But either way, we get the nice little reveal for those who didn't realise as Andrew Dervov's voice comes out, the gin asks her to sit down. Quite courteously, actually. It's... The relationship between Alex and the Jin through most of the film isn't particularly tense. Mm-hmm. It isn't violent. The Jin's always not nice to her, but um, polite. Yeah, at the very least, which is something they lose in the third and the fourth film. Uh, this massive amounts of charisma, alluring as all hell, all based on Andrew Dervov, entirely on his performance. And then Dervov starts taunting her with. My favourite perform line through the entire series, as his mouth ever so slightly agape, he says she got downright hysterical. But it's in the cheesiest, it's like turned up to 11. <laughs> it is it's fucking beautiful. It's a proper kind of Robert Unglund saying bitch in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Welcome to prime time, bitch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Alexandra and the gin have a conversation back and forth as the gin shows its true form. And at this point in this film, the gin looks really good. Yeah. At least for the late 90s, for the budget they had, it looks very good. Proper, um, I think, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer level. Yeah, I actually, I actually, I like the, the, the look of the gin in the first two over the second two, if you couldn't tell. So Alexandra, uh, obviously the, the problem you have with these films is there are often a lot of wishes where you give the protagonist unlimited potential to come up with solutions, you're going to have arseholes like us come forward and think, well, there's a, there's a few wishes you could use that could completely destroy this entire plot point of, I don't know, I wish you were never here, I wish you were trapped, I yeah. wish yada yada yada, uh, which they deal with sort of in the second film, but that's always the problem you're going to encounter when you have a genie. See, in my head... Literally, when you first went, okay, we're going to be watching the Wishmasters, I went, okay, I could probably win this in, like, two minutes. Just be like, okay, I want 20 million in cash, like, three floors down in my basement. Done. Okay, I wish for you to never interact with me or my family tree ever again. Done. Second wish. That's it. You completely doomed poor passers-by, but yeah, he got 20 million. Yeah. Maybe just even a, yeah, I wish for 20 million in cash and I wish for you to be confined to the planet Pluto for the rest of your existence. Now, piss off. Yeah, done. Bye-bye. It's always a problem in these films which you have to ignore, ultimately. Just wave off as, it's silly fun. Don't need to worry about this. So, Alexandra, other than doing any of that, the gin gives her a free wish to put her into the spirit of things, which is something I really do love as well. The idea of this gin, this all-powerful being that needs these three wishes, is enough of an arrogant cunt to say, yeah, I'll give you a free one. Yeah. Doesn't matter, I can still take them all from you. And she tells it to blow its brains out, uh, in which case, it, I think it's like a colt, comes in its hand, this revolver, yeah. puts it to its chin, fires upwards, you see its head burst out, little bits of brain fly up, and then... It heals itself, starts skirting back, and in a really annoyed voice, yeah, that which is immortal cannot be killed. If it's any consolation, that hurt like hell. It does sound pissed off. Yeah, I loved it. I I did actually like that a little bit. 
Is this the point where she starts talking about, oh yeah, I tell all my girls the to know your enemy sort of thing? Yeah, I tell all my girls to know your enemy, to make fun of the fat kid, to punch <laughs> the uh, weak, scrawny one. To go for the ankles. And yeah, she decides yeah to use that tactic, uh, to use basketball tactics to defeat an immortal, all-powerful being. And uses the wish. I'm trying to remember how this phrase. I wish to. I wish to know you. Yeah, something along that lines. And the gin does its job, like uh, some hipster poet. Doesn't bring out a book or anything. It transports her into its realm, into the fire opal, along with it, and then goes off again. This kind of arrogant, egotistical monologue about how it's despair, and it's the destroyer of worlds and all this. Yeah, and you see all the people that the he's taken the souls off and they're in like little torture devices like the policeman's there and he's got like the his chest the skin on his chest is being like pulled off by hooks um yeah the mannequin woman's there and she's being whipped back and forth yeah the the old guys well the old guy you don't see what is being done to him but it kind of like zooms in and out of his face yeah raw it's kind of um hellraiser style torture yeah uh, and she ends up kind of getting run through the realm. She you know, runs off. The dogs, two uh, little flesh dogs, who I've got to slap myself for saying this, look kind of like the dogs from um, the Bye Bye Man. Uh, they chase after her, run her through the realm as the djinn continues to taunt her. Uh, and the djinn obviously has free passage through the realm and out. He ends up leaving, looking at her into the fire opal. And says, so as she goes, you know, I'm not going to ever make the two wishes ever. He responds with, I don't need you to make them of your own volition. I only need to put you through unimaginable pain and make you want it to stop. Something along those lines. And ends up targeting her sister, to which Alex makes her second wish, uh, which again, all of these opportunities just sit there and think for a moment. She ends up going with, I want to be in my apartment without you. Yep, and then she is suddenly transported to her apartment where she still hears his voice in her head. Yeah, he goes on the answering machine. Oh, that's it, yeah. Yeah, it flicks on and uh, says that they're connected now. This is that little extra punch to her gut, a little bit of a taunt. God, I'm so fucking happy they managed to get Andrew Dervoff to do this. <laughs> it, it would have been shit without him. Yeah, probably. Well... I say probably. We know exactly how shit it would have been without him. <laughs> because the third and fourth one are without him. <laughs> so when she gets into her apartment, she looks for her sister and finds a note on the table saying that her sister left to Robert Ungland's party that he was going to throw uh, for the unveiling of the statue for the start of the film. Obviously, the statue's gone, but hey-ho, party's party. You've bought all the champagne now, and presumably ordered all the pizza, you can't waste all that stuff. So the party goes on. Alex starts to drive off immediately, going towards the party. And the, G- the gin stops at a stoplight just to taunt her one last time with what I was looking up, actually, when I was watching this with my dad, and he mentioned that there were a few Twilight references that come through. Uh, first one being Bermont, who's Robert Ungland's character, who I think he said play, uh, was the writer for a lot of Twilight episodes at some point, and then you have the going my way, which the djinn says as Alex passes through. 
which is another Twilight reference to a Hitchhiker episode. I think there were a couple others here and there. Clearly a lot of love for old horror stuff in the whole of this. So yeah, Alex continues to drive on towards the party while the djinn makes his own way as well. And uh, guarding the doors to what looks like kind of Mr. Burns-esque mansion, this gigantic, ridiculously sized thing, is Tony Todd, the Candyman himself. I can never be scared of the Candyman. I just think back to that. Have you ever seen that Malcolm in the Middle episode? No. Where they sing Candyman. Uh, oh, with, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. The one um, when they're in the, is in the military and they sing the Candyman. Yeah, yeah, that one. Yeah. It's all I can think of when I think Candyman now. It It's horrible, but when I see him in a film, I think of him in The Rock. The, uh, Cause he, the Sean Connery film? Yeah, because he's one of the military guys in The Rock. He gets, the again, the Nick Cage reference. He gets the worst kind of pun said to him before he dies, which is... He gets blown up by a rocket yeah, or I, something. Did yeah. you know... The uh, El- Elton John song Rocket Man. It was about you. You're the Rocket Man, and then he hits the fucking ignition and fucking fires him into the sky. That's literally Shit. every time I see him in a film, I'm like, okay, you got shot out of a fucking window by a rocket. Oh, he was good in that. Yeah, he was good in that. He was great in that. So, so Tony Todd at this point, uh, playing the doorman, he's. Approached by Alex, who says she's being followed by someone. Uh, he mentions a list at this point of people on it. She doesn't say a name at any point. It's just a girl in distress. She runs in and he takes that verbatim of, oh, we're going to need to deal with this then. Yeah, because basically uh, she gets to the party and then uh, she's like, okay, let me in because my sister's there, blah, blah, blah. And then she turns around, sees that the gin is literally just sitting on a car sitting on like a red Ferrari or some shit like that. And um, she kind of points at him, this guy's been following me. And the bouncer's just like, okay, that means you can go in and I'll deal with this. And then uh, the djinn walks up to him and he asks, um, starts asking like, have you ever wanted a different job than being a bouncer? Like standing out here is a bit boring all day, isn't it? And obviously as a bouncer, as you should, you'd be like, fuck off. He says that a few times. Yeah, Dervov eventually says, I don't want an escape from this line of work. In reality, I know what it would be like. Mm -hmm. I've seen enough. I've been drunk enough in enough clubs to know how it ends up. The bouncer tells you to piss off and don't come back. But um, at this point, Tony Todd indulges him and says, yeah, of course, I'd like an escape. And then he's transported into a, what they call, water tank? Uh, like a Houdini-esque yeah. glass box with water filled up. He's wearing a straight jacket. Yeah. Dervov, the uh, genie, walks along and says, Houdini managed it in two minutes. Good luck. Houdini managed it in two and a half minutes. Have fun. And then just fucks off into the party. So Alex at this point is frantically trying to find her sister and tell her to leave, uh, disregarding the lives of the poor fuckers in the museum mm-hmm. family first and all that obviously meanwhile andrew dervov the gin has gone up to robert ungland's character uh charles Beaumont, i think it is charles or something along those lines yeah it's it's something like that he's chatting with him uh going over the recent parties 
I think Amant mentions something about a divorce paper that was brought out at another party, and they get to talking, and uh, the djinn begins to describe the party he was at years ago with the king. I presume that was the one he was talking about. A party that was talked about endlessly, uh, went down in history, as it were, when he, you know, set things alight and there were fucking people turning into crocodiles and the skeleton coming out back in the uh, ancient Persia era. Yeah, yeah. So he's talking to England at this point and uh, he's talking about this party. said uh, it's a party that was remembered or will always be remembered. And England obviously says, oh, I'd w- uh, I'd love to throw a party. I wish I'd throw a party. I could throw a party like that. And then everyone starts getting pulled apart by piano wire and fucking uh, statues come to life of like samurai armor and yeah I, he, obviously like... uh, Dervov does a trademark charismatic little grin turns towards Alexandra uh, as if he always knew she was there and says your wish is granted or mouths it to Alexandra with that cheeky smile oh god I love it then we first cut I'm going to go into this in detail First cut to a woman who says that you can see right through me to a man she's talking to. And then she gets transparently lethal. Hey! <laughs> I managed it. Uh, and turns into class and shatters out, killing a number of people. Uh, Robert Kurtzman himself, the director of the film, is killed by piano wire. Uh, and then, yeah, basically all chaos ensues beyond that. The, so the fireplace, it belches out and burns a number of people. I think there's a few pillars that drop down. It's just chaos. People die. And it is wondrous to watch. It's, yeah, it shows every little bit as well in gratuitous detail. Just have a feeling it's film made obviously on a $5 million budget, which isn't much. You know, it's a lot, but it's not a huge amount compared to some of the big budget stuff, so they really do want to show what they can make with the special effects. They really want to uh, emphasise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's done by Robert Kurtzman, who's a special effects artist. Uh, who obviously, you know, he, he takes some pride in a lot of his work, and I'm sure he wants to show off what he's best at directing and what he knows how to do. Which I think is the biggest strength of this film, knowing uh, how to film the special effects. Alexandra trying to look for her sister at this point, can't find her. Uh, they walk through, yeah, this corridor, and I think you mentioned the statues come to life. Uh, Jin doubling his uh, military, adding a bit of culture, with the terracotta army stamping along. Mm-hmm. Uh, a load of guards come in at this point trying to evacuate everyone. Me, personally, I mean, I'm a coward at heart. I'd have fucking legged it at this point. But uh, each their own. They uh, try something that I imagine is fairly ineffective with statues, shooting them. Never shot a living statue, oh, yeah, but... Yeah, I've... Well, I, I, I haven't, because I live in England. But I imagine shooting ceramic, the things that they use in bulletproof vests... Probably isn't gonna. Oh no, they don't use ceramic. Sorry, I think they used to. But that, like, one of the most difficult things to like shatter. Yeah, I'll just fire a couple of rounds off into it, and it'll be fine. Yeah, shooting metal and the like. I've shot a uh, air rifle and a couple other things. I've shot into clay pots and the like. It'll go through that. Yeah, of mm. course it will. It takes some resistance with that, to be honest. With wood, it'll stop almost immediately. But obviously, you're not talking FMJ rounds. It's mm. it's just standard 9mm by the looks of it. They're not fucking stopping. They're not going all the way through. They're not shattering anything. They're just going to bounce off half the time. And these, yeah, things made of metal, some of them made of, yeah, this kind of ceramic uh, build. 
they go around with weapons and start just beating the everlasting shit out of the guards. Uh, Robert Ungland at this point is uh, throwing up what can only be described as kind of an alien-esque creature coming out of his mouth, which Alexandra manages to cut off from keeping her still in one location. It's quite the spectacle. Uh, Beside the Terracotta army, of course, there's Jack the Ripper, I think pretty much Jack the Ripper, who's brought to life from a painting, kind of a Victorian surgeon psychopath, who steps out and slits the throat of one of the other guards uh, with an actor who looks like he was having maybe too much fun in that role. <laughs> he's got the eyeshadow on, he's cackling just a bit too much. Uh, maybe he should be on a watch list somewhere. Alexandra walks uh, into a room, she gets to a dead end. The djinn following along, everyone else at this point has been incapacitated or killed. Uh, the djinn, yeah, is flanked by two terracotta pieces, starts taunting her and motions towards a picture of her sister, uh, a painting where she looks in fair terror with a kind of Lovecraftian Cthulhu-esque creature behind her. Let's sort of quote Billy Joel here. Alexandra starts the fire as the djinn flicks his fingers and said, oh, maybe we can make it a bit worse for your sister. And the fire you know, starts coking around her, uh, very reminiscent of what happened to her mother and father and what her sister as well when she was trapped in the building. Alexandra, oh, yeah, 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 she starts kind of sobbing away, terrified of the whole situation. Uh, and then, to be fair, it's not a strategy I'd have come up with. It's very specific, and I think it's a very good idea for a wish to kind of retroactively fix everything. Uh, and a very good one as well to allow a sequel, because obviously with all this death and destruction, the news would get involved and interviews would be done. Mm-hmm. Alex wishes that, I can't actually remember the character's name, but Joe Palacio, the drunk crane operator wasn't drunk on the job three days ago as specific as you can be uh which yeah I'd, yeah knowing this well there's probably four or five of the guys that were drunk on the job that day of the same name <laughs> knowing how many people are drunk this isn't a problem that i have with this film it's a problem i've got with um the second one you can see that wishes work retroactively and all that sort of stuff and you see that not time travel, but like things can be undone. Whereas the second one in the first five minutes, maybe someone wishes they were never born. And instead of like things, I don't know, the main woman not remembering the person or never being in the situation in the first place. It's just like, oh, no, we know he's dead, but no one else knows. Yeah, they're kind of Benjamin Bottomed out of existence in the second film. Yeah. It, it's a really weird thing when you think that, okay, retroactively happened in this one, but nothing really happened in the second one with the same kind of wish. Yeah. Uh, it made for a fun scene. Yeah. So, yeah, the guy wasn't drunk on the job in this film, and obviously that means that Ted Raimi isn't crushed like a Tetris piece. The statue is lowered normally to the ground and the djinn's chaos never occurred stopping the whole thing entirely very lucky really that that stopped it and didn't count as a third wish and put hell on earth Uh, it's one hell of a gamble but yeah pays off quite nicely and then is it explained if she has her memories from what happened or is it literally just like oh after all of this it reverts back to a few days ago no one has memory of the event other than alexandra uh, which you see by her then accepting her um, 
dead friends, previously dead friends, request to bone her. Uh, his advances. Yeah, that's far more tactically put there. So, uh, yeah, any of you guys looking for girlfriends, just uh, get tortured by a gin, have it reverted by her, and then uh, you're, you're good. There's a nice guy tip for the day. Yeah, the film ends. Uh, it needs to be said that with this film, it very easily sets up a sequel as the fire opal hasn't been touched. None of this chaos is known to anyone. Uh, it's all just mm-hmm. reverted like it never happened. So it, it's quite easy to see the same mistake happening again, which is a mistake that the third and fourth film make. So moving on to the second film then. Uh, so director and writer this time is Jack Shoulder, who also directed Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Acting-wise then, we have Andrew Dervolf returning as the Jin, and then Holly Fields, who plays Morgana, also in a film called The Seed People, which I've read a quick uh, bio of. It's about alien race who come and need to use human uh, bodies to create vessels to create more seed people, uh, more alien things. Sounds like a bizarre one. Yeah. Uh, Paul Johansson, who uh, plays Gregory in this, the priest, in a TV series called One Tree Hill. Tom Lister Jr., who's the really big built uh, prison guard. Uh, Tileva? The big built prison guard. Who's in a load of stuff, uh, including Friday, Ice Cube Film, Fifth Element, a few other really big stuff. Bokim Woodbine, who plays the casino... Uh, patron, the casino owner, uh, far along. Yeah. Why did they pick such weird fucking names for each of the cast, for each of the characters? Uh, I don't know. He's in a film called Overlord, which came out a few years ago, zombie film, World War Two, and Devil Again, the M Night Shyamalan film. Played the security guard in that. I uh, didn't embarrass himself, which is more than can be said for most of the people in that. And then uh, rounding up, we have Oleg Vidov, who plays Osip, the kind of Russian sidekick the film the the gin uh who was in a load of russian films really late and great i should say passed away unfortunately a couple of years ago film moscow in love moscow my love a couple of the things but yeah mm. uh of the big of the big cameos we have one not returning but keeping up the trend of Corey Haim plays a robber he was the younger boy in the lost boys uh you know of the uh the two that moved to the town Right, so budget has been hard for this as well, needs to be said, uh, which I didn't notice. I think it kind of kept it up to some extent. You could tell it was less, but not half. It it still had dignity about yeah. it. Yeah, if you told me that it was exact, like if you told me that it was drastically cheaper than the first one, I'd probably be like, okay, I can see it in some scenes, but others it seems fairly well shot. So. Also needs to be said, while I was looking up these films on Rotten Tomatoes, getting the cast and the like, uh, I do occasionally look at the Rotten Tomatoes score out of curiosity. None of these films have positive ratings. Absolutely zero in critic and in audience score. First film got the best, but it's still at 40%-ish for the audience and 28 for critics. Really fucking harsh. Uh, mm-hmm. The second film got a lower score than the fourth and the third film in critics. It got like 6%. On Rotten Tomatoes, which is horrendous. Yeah, considering we watched the third and fourth one, and me personally wanted to shoot myself in the face. 
I know Rotten Tomatoes obviously works based on a score system of if it's a positive review, it's a fresh. If it's a negative review, it's a rotten. So it's it's a bit misleading in some cases. Mm-hmm. I'll give it a positive review, the second film. And the first and the first yeah. film, I think it was a good solid six out of ten for what it was, for what it wanted to achieve, it achieved it. Yeah, I would say they are again, I wasn't I'm not much of a fan of them. I I would say they're perfectly passable kind of films. Third and fourth one, no. Yeah, different story entirely. Yeah. I don't understand why they're... Well, this one specifically has a Rotten Tomatoes score lower than the third and fourth, but here we go. should be said as well, this is the first film of the franchise. More, It's fairer to say, actually, that the only film of the franchise that was released to cinema was the first one. All of the rest were released straight to uh, DVD and TV. I suppose modern times more released to streaming uh, which i certainly could tell with the fourth one it had that vibe to it the third one not quite so much but it was there the second one i could see it in cinema quite easily it had that cinematic feel to it still so start off at the film with quite possibly the least intelligent burglars imaginable uh, so they're robbing a museum there's paintings on the wall, there are artefacts, and if you're selling stuff like this, uh, you generally have someone that's buying it directly. So if you rob a bank, you know, you can always get someone who's going to get money. If you rob a jewellery store, you can always get someone who's going to buy a ring or a jewel. It's very difficult to sell an artefact or a painting. There's a reason they're called priceless, because uh, no one's going to buy them, because they're they're worth so much, and it's such a specific niche market that you really need to know the person before you actually start selling them on. Even with that, they continue to make some staggering mistakes, the biggest one of which is smashing a glass case open without looking for an alarm button, without looking for anything like that, without knowing in advance. And the alarm clearly starts beaming out, booming away. Uh, Security come out of the woodworks. They start shooting away. One of the robbers is shot and killed. Yeah, it's almost instantly one of the robbers is shot and killed and there's two more that kind of run off in one direction. They start heading down the stairs. One one is kind of ahead and gets shot, but the other one comes down the stairs, shoots this other security guard. The one that was shot kind of stands up and kind of pulls out the gem and said it blocked the bullet and then... Out of nowhere, another security guard comes, shoots the person that didn't have the gem, and then the other one shoots that person and then runs away. Yeah, well, Gardner, uh, one that survives, runs away. The one that survives runs away. The guard that falls to the ground, her boyfriend, starts bleeding out. The gem shining away. The bullet seems to have set it off. It seems to be quite inconsistent mm-hmm. what actually sets this fucking thing off. I don't know if it was just me. Having your main character, the person you're supposed to be rooting for, murder someone in within the first five minutes of the film doesn't really make me want to see that she lives at the end. I think especially when you put her against an actor like Andrew Dervov that has that innate charisma. Yeah. I kind of want to see him win. But again, that, that's what we're watching these for. I want to see what he does. I want to see him have a fun time. I don't really give a shit about what happens to the humans in all these. <laughs> That's fair. The gem glows out. 
And then on the wall, this kind of Stranger Things-esque portal opens up and the djinn comes out, looking even worse aware than last time when he came out at the start. He's, again, like a little salamander that's just sliding around on the ground, crawling around. Yeah, he's he's got, like, little spindly twig legs and stuff like that. And I can't remember. He has a face, but it's kind of, like, embedded into the torso of, of the, I use um, air quotes, body. I think he says the same thing that he did to Josh in the last one. It's like, do you want the pain to end? And the boyfriend of Morgana at the time kind of was like, I wish I was never born. And then there's kind of a, that, I don't know how to explain it, but that very no, um, I, common thing I of call like it de-aging. A, uh, a expediated Benjamin Button situation. Yeah, I mean, you see, I suppose the, the worst place that I've seen it, or the most egregious place that I've seen it, is in like that episode of Doctor Who. Where um, the master is like aging the doctor, and he kind of like it looks like he vibrates in place, and then it starts like there's little glimpses of him like um, aging and whatnot. But in this, it's like de aging, and then occasionally you hear like a kid screaming instead, or a baby screaming instead, and yeah, he poofs out of existence eventually, uh, which I'm grateful for. Um... Glad they didn't go for the whole uh, sticking back up the uh, hoo-ha route. Yeah, you're now sperm. Far more tasteful. So he's gone, and the djinn uh, stays there this time. A security guard runs up towards the djinn, puts the gun out, and yeah, it's another point where you realise that I wish kind of phrase isn't needed in this film at all. And the guard, I don't think he even phrased something like he wanted anything. It was just something he said. Yeah, the guard runs in and shouts, freeze, and then he turns into an ice cube, basically. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, that guy's soul's gone now. That that seems um, harsh. I I do just want to point out here, it really annoyed me. I went for, I was going to go for some kind of Batman-esque pun from Batman and Robin, chill out to freeze off, but uh, the gin, the gin did it for me. Yeah, I like the comment that you've written down in your notes where it goes, film continues with the puns. That's my job. Uh, Dervov, yeah, he's hounded by two other guards who put pistols against him. And they ask what the hell happened with the other one. He said he needed to chill out and leave it at that. Bizarrely, me personally, I go, no, can you be more specific? Tell me what the fuck you just did with this guy. Looks like you put his body through uh, liquid nitrogen. Yeah, there's like large icicles like falling off him and stuff. There's a lot of moments through all of these films where any man of any reason would have ran the fuck away a good hour ago. Dervov uh, seemingly goes to jail winningly to some extent, or he can't get the people there to say a phrase that can uh, culminate in him staying out of jail. Yeah, I think later in the film he's like, I wanted to be here anyway. Because, yeah, the film's changed up a little from the first one. It's not that the person who needs to make three wishes uh, then unleashes all the gin. Now he needs to get a thousand and one wishes from everyone and then get the three wishes. Yeah, he basically needs... Uh, how it's explained is he needs to collect uh, 1,001 souls before he can give the three wishes and 
open the portal for his other djinn to come through. More or less just an excuse for him to go fucking nuts against different areas of society. Uh, which I really wish that's what the rest of these films did. I'd be more than happy with yeah. going down a kind of Friday the 13th-esque, here's the djinn in Manhattan. Here's the djinn in the Pentagon. Here's the djinn in a school. <laughs> here's the djinn in fucking Asda. All of these would be fine. I'd be more than happy to see the djinn in different locations. Yeah, this film at least takes to that and puts him in, I think, the best areas when you think of kind of uh, desperation and dealings. So the djinn ends up in jail. He starts off in a holding cell-esque place with the kind of people you'd expect in a holding cell. There's a bold guy who looks a bit thuggish. There's a slightly fat man who has kind of scraggly hair, looks looks like shit, looks like a douchebag, says to the djinn, I fucking own you, you know, you're mine, yeah. kind of thing. And then starts talking about his shoes and if they're English. Dervov ends up, you know, going through his kind of djinn stuff, says, you know, I can offer you a wish, what's your heart's desire? And the guy says, oh, it's a fucking genie. And the guy, he ends up something along the lines of, I want to walk through those bars. Yeah. He says specifically, I want to be able to walk through those bars and then walk out the front doors. He doesn't make it to the front doors. Yeah. He uh, leaps headfirst to freedom through the bars of his cell and ends up like a fine yeah. Swiss cheese. Yeah. He basically forces himself, his body through like one of the bars of the cell. And ends up, yeah, basically like a folded um, piece of paper on the other side of the bars. And the rest of the occupants of that cell give Dervov a very wide fucking perimeter at that point. They don't mess with him, I think, yeah, quite smartly. So, yeah, I, I think this is the start of a trend you see that goes through the four films. The first film, I could tolerate the human scenes. The second film... I couldn't stand them. And the third and the fourth yeah. film, I was just so tired. I didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Yeah, they... Yeah, I'm in exactly the same place. But to be fair, in this one, at least the gin was still intriguing. Actually enjoyable to watch. I guess another plus to this film, it kind of realised what everyone wanted. They just wanted more gin, wanted more Dervov. And they focused on him. Yeah. I don't know what the split was. I feel like in the first film it was a maybe a 60-40 split in favour of the people. I feel in this one it was mm-hmm. a 60-40 split in favour of the djinn. Yeah, I, th- I think obviously the less, in a horror film, the less you see of like the uh, the antagonist, the the evildoer, is the more scary it will be because like, you don't know when it will pop up. So I think in this one they were like, okay, if... He's the most entertaining part of these films. Instead of making it a horror, let's make it into a kind of like, like a comedy-ish kind of thing, which well, I mean, use, I'm yeah, fine to with. Use Robert Ungland as a uh, basis. Mm-hmm. It's the difference between Friday the Thirteenth One and Dream Warriors. They yeah. not jump the shark. Is it? It's still grounded in some reality, some rules, but they've realised what makes it so good. They've realised what kind of pushed it forward, and they're focused on that, which is really to their strength. But yeah, the actual human scenes with Morgana, uh, she's a little bit more proactive than Alex in some ways, and somehow comes across far more knowledge than Alex ever did. Uh, it's 
yeah, more exposited in book form this time. And she starts researching almost immediately, finds out a load of shit about the djinn, uh, gets her priest friend involved, starts researching more and more stuff. And progressively through the film, they come up with a plan. Uh, it cuts back and forth, but we're pretty much just going to focus on the djinn because it's, it's by far the more interesting part. Yeah. Like, honestly, during this entire thing, I think I checked out on most of the human parts of it and only when the gene the gin was on screen is when i was paying attention because as soon as like it was like okay morgana's the main character okay she's just lost a boyfriend and she's just brutally murdered an innocent person i'm kind of cashed out i was like okay i'm not really interested and then about 20 minutes more into the film she very quickly moves on from the boyfriend that she was crying about and she's banging the priest. Yeah, so the most successful of the friend's owners yeah, who's trying uh, to be innocent needs to be said. They find out at some point that you need to be innocent to get rid of the gin, uh, and the priest decides yeah. sleeping with a woman out of wedlock. I should say, I don't, I don't know how this fucking works. I'm not religious, but I'd want to cover all my bases if it was uh, a case of in an elemental being, I'd, I'd convert to something and go, yeah, sure, why not? Forgive my yeah. sins, do all this stuff. Uh, but no, the priest just sleeps with her and uh, goes about his business, presuming innocence throughout it, which he isn't, turns out. But yeah, we'll get to that when it comes to it. Uh, and they do intersect with the djinn, of course, occasionally. There's a bit more interaction as well with the djinn and the victim, at least towards the start of the film in this, than there was in the latter one. Yeah. Uh, because the djinn doesn't seem to give a fuck if they know his plans. Yeah, I think at some point he just outright tells them plans. It's, it's pretty much a villain monologue. Just <laughs> done amazingly. Uh, and that, that absolutely not a bad thing. So one thing we should mention before we go on to the djinn is that Morgana and the guy who plays Greg. Yeah, Gregory, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're not bad actors. I think Greg reminded me a little too much of the best mate in the room for me to take him overly seriously. Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. guy who plays Morgana, the guy who plays Greg, not bad actors at all, just uninteresting entirely. It's Morgana doing loads of fucking uh, research about all this uh, gin stuff. I think she looks up on the internet and she's looking through books and she gets the priest to look into it as well. Meanwhile, uh, the djinn is now in prison, in like a federal state prison, and um, he starts making dealings with other prisoners, saying, um, do you want to get out of here, and stuff like that. Uh, One of them takes him up on his offer and asks that he wants to get out of here and get back home. Then he literally, as he says that, a guard comes over and tells him that his lawyer's there. Yeah, it's a then... thing. They're talking back and forth to the convicts about the situation they've been in. Uh, convicts, obviously, mm-hmm. uh, they all believe they're innocent, is the classic stereotype. And this one convict blames his lawyer that he took a uh, plea deal for three to five years, I think it was, rather than the walk that it should have been. And the guy says he yeah. wants to see the lawyer fuck himself, I think. Wants the lawyer to go fuck himself. <laughs> I think it was the exact quote. Which, um, All right. yeah, it hits me as 
the lawyer obviously isn't affected at all his job by uh, the gin. So the lawyer obviously had the uh, skills to get this guy out already. Yeah. And unfortunately, this point intersected, which ends up with <laughs> one hell of a scene to watch. And uh, this yeah. is poor. I can't even imagine what they put in the uh, acting uh, application form for what they wanted. <laughs> Weirdly, happens twice in this series, watching someone basically fuck themselves. Both of the times. I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of the second. Uh, full film, the uh, best friend black girl. Oh, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this guy, uh, convict, goes in to meet his lawyer. Obviously, they're put uh, isolated uh, together in a room, table, two chairs. And the lawyer starts talking about how, yeah, we've got an idea of how I can get you out the DEA messed up the search, they uh, failed to follow a few and a few protocols and now you can go home free. During the conversation he occasionally just yelps out in pleasure and tries to get back to it uh, until eventually his body contorts to where he is fucking himself. Yeah, it's like his legs levitate, spin around and then there is the awkward movement of his legs just slamming against his back while he's bent over the uh, table. Uh, yeah, basically he's fucking himself. And the the prisoner, obviously seeing this, kind of calls a guard in and then the guard and him just stand there and watch. <laughs> Quick cut back to Morgana. Girl's apartment, fucking amazing like it is in all these films. It's massive. Presumably in like Los Angeles, San Diego as well. Yeah, it's like a huge loft. With a fucking lift going up to it and all sorts. It's uh, insane. They do their research and stuff. Cutting back to the gin. Russian guy, Osip, uh, meets up with uh, the gin and starts trying to bargain with the guy. Basically uh, says that he's heard the gin is more or less the devil, uh, but doesn't care. And the gin presumably has got a lot of deals going on throughout. You see, occasionally a guy goes up to him and says, oh, what this, this and this done. And the gin says, oh, cost is a soul. And each and every person says, yeah, mm-hmm. sure. It is mentioned before Osip and the gin escape that a lot of prisoners refuse to deal with the fucking guy, which I'd assume everyone would after the second or third time of, yeah, we're paying our soul and he can actually do this shit. I'm good. I think I'd also convert to like Catholicism or something at that point. <laughs> it, it's what annoys me with a lot of these films, um, where the devil's involved or something's involved. I'd think that most of the cast would go, oh shit, the devil's real. I'll convert to religion then. Shit. Yeah. Heaven's probably real, hell's probably real. Jesus, yeah. Run along. I can imagine that half of these horror films leave priests and nuns in their wake. Nothing but monks and nuns everywhere. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this guy, uh, Osip, tries to deal with the gin, and the gin at this point reveals that he can only give out one wish per customer in this film. Mm-hmm. It's one of the big rules. These need to gather a thousand wild souls. I think it's it's put in there, that rule, just to make it that little bit more interesting, that little bit more awkward for him. Because otherwise, I can imagine yeah. he could go up to one homeless guy and just say, do you want a steak? Yeah, I want a steak. Here's a steak. You want a drink? Yeah, I want a drink. Here's a drink. And the film would be over in seconds. So, I think that, honestly, a lot of these films, if just some homeless twat who has nothing to his name found this duel, the film would be over in no time flat. Yeah. Or just some moron, some guy with a 60 IQ who doesn't understand what he's doing. The film would be fucking finished. 
yeah, Russian guy bargains with the gin. Uh, they go back and forth. We also meet at this point the big head honcho of the prison, who's this massive guard who's taken a disliking to Andrew Dervov. As everyone does, really. I said he's got that innate charisma to him. You still hate the guy. He still uh, gives yeah. off this kind of vibe that you'd hope the devil would. You want to avoid him at all costs. This is the point where Morgana is obviously getting the visions of him making all the deals in the prison. She goes to the prison to kind of confront him and talk to him. Basically just like, yeah, I'm collecting a thousand one souls and then I'll give you three wishes after that. But right now I'm just going to stay here for a bit. Yeah, the gin continues having fun uh, around the prison. A couple things, a couple of wishes pass back and forth uh, until the prison's big honcho, huge guy who's flanked by two martial artists, look like twins, Chinese descent. He goes up to Andrew Dervoff, the big honcho, set knowing, I presume, full well that half of this guy's wishes have come true. So he's an all-powerful magical deity. At which point I'd be cautious at a minimum. In reality, I'd be running the fuck away, as I said. I'd be going, you know what? Not yeah. my thing. Like, he's made many people's wishes come true. And he's like, okay, I want coke. I want ha- I want half of what you're making. And he's like, um, no, but you can have a wish. And then the dude's like, I want to get fucking shit-faced and coked up. And he says all these fucking other terminology for basically being off his tits on drugs. Yeah, dual terminology that can mean getting off your tits and getting the shit kicked out of you. Uh, And the uh, djinn picks and chooses. He uh, goes for the latter. And yeah, the big prison honcho has the shit kicked out of him. He's pulverised, more or less. By his two bodyguards. Even if they're unwilling. Yeah. I did it. They, they look terrified. As I say, we're not doing this, we're not doing this. And then continue to kick the crap out of the guy. Who can do nothing in response. Uh, the two bodyguards that have, you know, not the crap kicked down, but they're uh, put away by the big prison guard. Yeah. So, with, yeah, cutting to Morgana, quick couple notes to take. Uh, so there's a bit of a religious angle placed in by the priest who says to become, yeah, finds out in a bit of writing that uh, you need to be pure to take him out. You need to be pure to remove the djinn from the realm. Uh, and this is when this is when they find out you need a thousand one souls uh, to bring the djinn to your realm. Becoming pure in all films apparently just means taking out your nose ring, taking off your makeup and putting your hair in a reasonable fashion. There is no way this woman's pure because literally the start of the film is her murdering someone. I know it comes up later and it's like, I wish I never did that. Doesn't make it any less true that you've already did that and saying that, oh no, she doesn't She doesn't wish that she didn't do that. She just wishes he was back alive. Doesn't mean you're pure now. Presumably she's still tainted. I'm always reminded, yeah, that, that joke in Cabin Fever where uh, they go through the different stereotypes and say, oh, we need a jock, we need a scholar, we need a virgin. And the girl turns around and says, I'm not a virgin. They say, oh, we have to make do in the modern era. I always think kind of taking out your nose ring, just doing up your hair, is that the best you can do, really, to make yourself pure? Do you mean Cabin in the Woods? Yeah, Cabin cabin in the Woods. That's what I mean. (laughs) (laughs) I'm an idiot. I was like... Yeah, never mind that then. (laughs) (laughs) All that. So Morgana, to compensate for her uh, impureness, uh, gives God the finger 
where I chopped her own pinky off. Uh, which, I don't know, it's maybe the last thing I'd attempt. Yeah, like, why would cut enough... I, I did, when I was watching it, I was like, I haven't paid attention to the human bit, but why the fuck is she cutting off a finger? I'm sure there's something in the Bible somewhere. And it was um, Isaac, Abraham cuts off Isaac's foreskin. There's a lot of sacrifice. I, kn- I, I know that I think there's a passage in there that's like, if thine own hands offends, cut it off sort of thing. But I'm sure a pinky finger isn't fucking harming anyone. We find out that doesn't work anyway. And regardless, if yeah. it did work, maybe try asking for forgiveness first. Try going <laughs> up and, you know, doing that whole confession thing before you chop off your own fucking finger. Yeah. Give back the paintings, which she does as well. Do all that, and then chop off your finger if none of that works. Take it's... it up to 100 immediately, unnecessarily. Yeah, it, it's fucking stupid. Returning them, it's you basically going, okay, I was wrong, but I still don't want to pay the time for me committing the actual crime, so we'll just put it here and call it quits. I know a few people died, but fuck them. Ah. I think it all again comes back to the whole one or two wishes could finish this. If you just went up to the guy and said, I want to be pure of heart, done. Right, now I'm going to kill you. I mean, she wishes that she had the stone in her hand. I mean, fuck me. So we cut back to the gin after all this as they go back and forth deciding on their plan. She cuts off her finger. The gin goes up to Osip again, uh, asks him, you know, what do you want? You want to be free of here because I've run out of customers. Is interrupted by the uh, big head honcho guard who separates them, uh, puts Andrew Dervov in the hole. I think he has already actually put Andrew Dervov in the hole for a few weeks and then mm. says he's going to put him through hell, where it's implied that he's going to beat the shit out of him over and over again. Uh, and Andrew Dervov goes back and forth and saying, What do you want? What do you need? The guard, uh, a little elusive and doesn't ask for anything specifically until eventually the guard says, You know, what I would wish. I'd wish to have a minute yeah, to dance with you, slow dance with you, Compton style, which is one hell of a beautiful way of putting I want to beat the crap out of you. I don't know if that's a standard saying, but I really want it to be. Because that is a really nice saying. Uh, the djinn ends up teleporting with the head guard into the prison cell, into a prison cell. And the djinn shows its true form and goes for a minute fighting the guard. Uh, and this is one thing this film does great, which the third and fourth films don't do, which is knowing what to cut, when to cut, what to show, what they can't show, because they don't have the budget. Uh, they don't show the fight at all, which they don't need to. Yeah. I'm just going to assume automatically that the Jin's going to win and beat the everlasting crap out of the guard. Yeah, he's just going to fucking curb stump him for another minute. And all you see is the guard looking shit scared, then cuts away. Uh, you see the guard coming out towards Osip, and then he says, do you want to get out of here? Then comes up with Andrew Dervov's voice, just asked to open the gates, and Osip realises, oh shit, yeah, he uh, took care of the guard. And they walk mm-hmm. out. Uh, a guard comes across the head honcho guard's body, and he looks like he's had the shit kicked out of him. He's had his face torn off, his body's broken, is bleeding everywhere. It's all you need. I'll take the assumption and I'll imagine what the fight was like from that. So uh, Osip in this point, Osip and the uh, Jin are traversing towards Osip's old club. 
think some time passes because it comes into the news that Osip's left the jail itself, uh, which is where Morgana and Gregory find out about the old club uh, and where Osip and the Jinn are. Mm-hmm. Osip promises a lot to the Jinn, doesn't really deliver, eventually brings his boss in P- Piltov? Pitov? Something like that. Yeah, something. Uh, and the Russian mob boss talks to the Jin, uh, who surprised him by knowing Russian, and talks back and forth. The Russian mob boss says, I don't have anything I want. I have money, I have power, I have women. Uh, why would I ask for anything else? You ask me, that's just a lack of fucking imagination. Endless things, a better season finale for Lost. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thankfully, I never watched that show, so I'm good. Game, there you go. Here's, here's something either. that everyone, yeah, everyone can relate to that one. Everyone can wish for another uh, a better last season for Game of Thrones. I know it's not particularly ambitious, but it's better than not wanting anything. Yeah. And then the Jin kind of asks if he wants a rival taken care of. Um, he says no. And then Osip kind of brings up someone, uh, like a specific person, which apparently offends someone and they all aim guns at each other and all that shit. Uh, the djinn obviously says I can take care of him for you the Russian mob boss says I want his head and then he literally just turns him he changes the Russian mob boss's head into that of some random guy we've never seen before the Russian mob boss uh, stands there kind of touching his own face, terrified as the other guards point guns at him as if he is that actual guy yeah like, they didn't just see their mob boss friend or their mob boss literally in front of them and his head change. It's like they've just gone... It's, it's like when you look away from something and then you look back and it's fucking disappeared. It, it's like they've done that, but all at once. Well, they don't have object gone... fucking permanence yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the mob boss is kind of carted off as Osip declares himself the ruler of the uh, Russian Mafia. Seems a bit premature, but whatever does you. Yeah, basically, he's like, okay, I'm boss now. Fucking, I'm the best. Whatever. And Morgana basically runs in, all gun-toting, finds the gin, and because she's so innocent and pure of heart, has a Colt 9 ready to shoot off at the gin. Fires a couple of rounds into him, and the gin finds it amusing. I'm pure of heart, so I'm going to use this very violent means of killing you. I suppose it's less than I'm pure of heart, so I'm going to put a flower crowd around your head and beg you for, beg you to stop. <laughs> Please, sir. She's kindness. If he took that as one of her wishes, then I suppose it would. Just stop. I, I think at this point he still hasn't collected enough, enough souls, so he's like, I'll get to you later. Run along. And he's like 800 or something, I think he says. He's an insane number. Yeah, I think at this point he's got like 400 and then he leaves Osip there kind of dancing and doing all that shit because he thinks he's a mob boss now. And then he goes into the it goes into a casino and asks for a job. Yeah, it's less a job, I think, more a partnership. By the way, yeah. uh, he's talking to the casino boss. The boss asks him, you know, do you have any experience within the world of gambling? And kind of talks to him as a an equal rather than an employee-boss relationship. And a few words were exchanged, 
Dove obviously loves the idea of a casino. The gin asks if all the games are rigged, and the casino manager says, no, we wish all our customers the best of luck, which obviously the gin's like, okay, that's your wish. Done. It's not only his wish, apparently, but everyone in the casino's wish. Yeah, because I don't know how that works, but then everyone just is like, okay, if we gamble here, we're just giving our souls away. I, I don't know if it's... Uh... Of... Surely you could go up to just the Prime Minister Do you want the best for your people? Yeah, I wish the best for my people And that's all of England fucked Hey, He moves up towards the kind of penthouse area The overlooking area The main office of the casino Morgana and Gregory uh, follow along eventually And there's a really nice kind of three minute scene Where Greg and Morgana confront the gin and the Andrew Dervov just has so much fun having this ever so slight sarcastic tone to everything he says. It's just drenched. Uh, as yeah, they try to come up with wishes to deal with the gin, and this is where I said they try to answer a few questions of you might have had of really easy, obvious wishes that you might be able to get rid of. Uh, you can't kill that which is immortal. He says you can't change that which is immortal. So a few of the ideas are shot down. And he's trying desperately through this to get them to say something to put themselves in the shit, which, again, is something the third and the fourth film lack. The kind of clever back-and-forth dialogue, needing one party to slip up at some point, waiting yeah. for a mistake. The third and the fourth one, it's more a physical intimidation side of things. They skip that, the uh, discourse between the two. And then eventually Gregory gets out across, points it, towards the djinn after uh, finding that the stone idea fails completely is the djinn something along the lines of i i'm the wish master i get to choose what happens with me yeah something like that yeah, gregory gets that across uh points it towards dervov who pretends to cower in fear uh he looks again he looks like he's having so much fun with the whole thing and i could <laughs> i could imagine the djinn enjoying this savouring every moment of that kind of idea of giving them hope while knowing yeah, they've yeah. got no chance whatsoever. Being that kind of arrogant, I'm definitely going to win and I can savour every last moment. Which is what I, I presume an all-powerful being has to get their fun from somewhere. And obviously they can't have any fun from just doing something because they can do that anyway. They can cause endless devastation. Uh, so they've got to find some other little emotion or something else to savour that element of entertainment from. And the idea of hope that's misplaced, uh, perfect for a all-powerful malicious being, with some rules, obviously, to stop them from just destroying them outright. And so Greg, uh, he gets the cross out and kind of exorcist style starts trying to exercise, for lack of a better term, the djinn from the world. He goes through the kind of standard in the name of God, in the name of Yahweh, I banish you. Then, I don't know why he does this. I don't know if it's a standard thing that the Roman Catholic Church teach. A kind of, yeah, you have to word it this way. But he uses the words, I wish. He ends up saying, I wish you would go back to hell. I don't think that would be how it would be worded in uh, any kind of religion, I don't think. I command, maybe? Yeah, I command thee back to hell or some shit like that. I understand. I don't I get that, but I... Something with more authority behind it. 
so the script allows them to say I wish and for the audience to go oh he fucked up yeah in a film as well that's shown that a guard just saying freeze and then he the djinn's got all the power <laughs> in the world to turn to ice it's not necessary just yeah. go to hell excellent that works you're all in hell well done uh, and hell in the djinn's mind is the djinn's own world kind of a not hell on earth but hell on elemental planes as it were as the djinn locks Greg and Morgana in the the hellish realm. He goes up to the casino manager and he says, uh, uh, do you want more action? And then I think he's like, no, I think I've had enough action. I think he slips up again and... Morgana says, says, you've definitely had enough, don't say anything. And then the casino manager slips up. And he accidentally kind of says yeah i wouldn't mind a bit more action then literally everything goes to hell not literally but yeah it's an excuse (laughs) yeah that's for it it's an excuse again to um to kind of have fun and to mess about with this new environment and to do whatever the hell they want with uh different objects and puns puns galore uh so yeah the rear light table goes for a spin and chops people up Cards are shuffled, kind of Gambit style from X-Men, and begin killing folk. One woman and one guy, halfway through, continue gambling for some fucking reason. Yeah, I was wondering that. They're, they're literally just standing there at the table like, yeah, let's. we see people dying, but let's just carry on. So I paused it at first to put down, because one guy's gambling, not gambling on the machines, one guy's uh, picking up money from the ground. And I paused it to say, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs kicks in. At some point, and you go, right, survival over money. But then it, it gets even worse. There's an old woman who continues rolling in a game of craps. Who the fuck are you rolling against? You realise <laughs> the dealers have ran away. There's no one there. Because the other, uh, the gin rolls for her, says, oh, you're crap out of luck. And she looks mildly annoyed. There are people dying around you. Run away, you idiot. Crap out of luck there. I think entirely used for a pun, which the uh, writers probably thought a little bit, probably a little too happy about. It, it sounds like they were like, oh, let's write this bit in and then let's think of a joke about it. I feel like it was more they thought the joke and then went, where the fuck can we put this? I really want this joke to be used. I'm so proud of it. And then, uh, yeah, had a crap out money, uh, which doesn't hurt her in any way. Just had a load of no, gold coins still on the ground. at the end of it, yeah. So yeah, it continues on in this chaos. The casino dealers attacked by bees. Frogs start spawning about. Locust swarms rush around. Uh, it falls into absolute chaos. Pandemonium. And eventually Morgana, who has escaped uh, at this point, I think she just wished herself out of it, along with Greg. Rather than, as we said, going for the very simple, I wish I was pure of heart, I wish I was innocent, any of these things. Uh, and obviously Jin can't kill her at this point because he needs three wishes out of her. She's only given one at this point. Anything. She goes for, I wish the guy who I shot wasn't dead earlier. Which, again, you still shot her, as you said, Steph. I understand, yeah, you want to you wanna add more lore to the, the franchise and whatnot. But if you have one of the, the things that are like, alright, we need a person that's pure of heart. And you've clearly shown her shoot someone in the start of the film. You really can't do this, where it's like, oh, I just wish he was alive again, and then you see like a little scene where he got he's hugging his family and kids, uh, his wife and kids, 
And then that apparently makes her pure of heart. Oh, she's not wearing her goth clothes anymore. She's wearing a fucking pink cardigan and a dress. And she's got her hair down, I suppose. It seems like the most surface level, mom level kind of. Oh, she's not a slut anymore in those gothy clothes. She's not doing the drugs and yeah. the alcohol and the gaming and the biking and the... I had long hair before Christmas. I shaved it off literally just before Christmas. Does that mean I'm pure of heart now? I've got tattoos. I'd imagine I'm fucked. Yeah, I yeah, suppose I'm fucked too then, to be fair. It'd be uh, a load of long weeks in the uh, laser. Gin, she pulls the stone out of her pocket, the, the gem... And then the gym, the gin literally just make, uh, just kind of like telepathy brings it into his hand, sort of. Now, yeah, telepathy. Uh, it teleports into her hands, and she starts Bahim, Bahim Ra or something along those lines. Yeah, and then she be- she uses her second wish to have it teleport back into her hand, and then she uses this incantation, which is. Needs to be used by a pure person. Traps him again, which I, I, yeah, I genuinely wanted in this film for her to die. I think if I were going to write it, I would have had it where she maybe, I don't know, tackled the security guard out of the way and a boyfriend shot him. I wouldn't even have that. I would literally have a priest. All right, yeah, he's a, it's a bit uh, cliche and whatnot, but he's literally the purest person in this fucking film. Fair enough, yeah, he had sex with this fucking woman, but out of wedlock and whatnot. I'd be like, okay, it's not pure of heart in the religious terms of it. Maybe it's like a pure of heart in like what a djinn would see as pure of heart. He hasn't killed anyone. He hasn't fucking done this, that, and the other. He's literally just trying to help as many people as he can. I'd have it so he'd fucking done this incantation and trapped him. She died at some point. She dies in the casino trying to, like... Even if uh, she sacrifices herself for the priest. Yeah. And then, in that moment, she then uh, banishes him as she's dying. Something like that. I'd work with the priest did that. Rorovas, well, that'd be fine. And he banished the thing. Uh, You just need a bigger showing than just one wish. I know that's the idea, kind of just a click, and uh, if you're smart enough, you can deal with the whole situation. It's not... It literally is that point where if she used the uh, that same wish where she wished the guy to be alive again, if she just wished, I wish I was pure of heart, the dude would still be dead and she'd be still pure of heart. Yeah, I, I think they were trying to come up with a clever one wish to deal with everything that the audience wouldn't think of. And in the first film, that worked. It was kind of yeah. an entire reversal of time. And obviously, they didn't want to touch on that idea again, but they tried too hard, I think, to uh, to implement the idea of out-tricking the djinn. In this one, they've really... It could have gone cliche. You know, talking about this in conjunction with the first film, do you think Alex at any point would have gone, oh, you know what, I should probably keep an eye on that artefact? It contains an all-powerful being that could destroy the world. Just yeah. in case, I should probably say, I mean, you know what, Robert Ungland, I think don't sell that to an art gallery. I think keep hold of that. You know, I'll fucking buy it off you. When I first watched this film, I genuinely thought, okay, they've gone to steal from Robert Ungland's like, um, collection or whatnot. I genuinely thought that's what that was. Now that I've had this talk and whatnot, I've realised it's not. Why... 
Alex in the first film should have just gone, okay, I'm going to keep an eye on the fucking statue just in case. And if I hear about it's being uh, a place being rubbed and I hear about the statue being broken and whatever, I'll be like, mm, I'm going to go look into this myself. Yeah, no, absolutely that. It's just a massively dangerous thing that could end the world. I'd want to own it or at least know where it is at all times. I'd sleep. I I personally would sleep with Robert Ungland to keep that thing in his possession <laughs> if I needed to. I like to think in the third and fourth film that it's a different gin operating on completely different rules. That that's how I'm gonna headcanon it because it changes so much. I hope that is what's happening because if it's if they're trying to say it's the same gin, then they can fuck off. On that note. Moving on to the third film, uh, again, straight to TV release. We this time have director of Chris Angel, who directed Wishmaster 3, Wishmaster 4, and a film called Beyond Redemption, which is a pretty damn apt title for his career in general. Uh, Writer (laughs) Alex Wright, who did Sleepwalking in Suburbia, Stolen from Suburbia, and a number of other Suburbia films. Was he from Suburbia? Please tell me he's from like New York or some shit. Uh, so actors, AJ Cook, who plays Anna Collins, our lead, who uh, in a film called The Virgin Suicides and Final Destination 2, which I think the Final Destination films are probably the closest you're going to get to Wishmaster. Uh, if you like Final Destination, you're going to probably like Wishmaster as well. It's got the same kind of um, inevitability aspect to it, same kind of outwitting and uh, fun scenarios that Final Destination had with the deaths mm-hmm. and the wishes. Uh, John Novak, who plays the djinn while in djinn form, who was in Doctor Doolittle 3, uh, to give you an idea of the calibre we're dealing with. And the son of the late great Sean Connery, also from The Rock, of course, Jason Connery, who plays Andrew Dervov's djinn, more or less the human form of the djinn, and the professor for a lot of it. Professor Joel... Barash? Barash? Oh, that. Uh, Holy fuck. Also in Robin of Sherwood, which my dad tells me was terrible. Show from late 80s, early 90s. So a couple of things about this film before we start. Uh, in terms of actual filming, it was filmed back-to-back with Wishmaster 4 over a very short time span. No shit. Over like 16 days. Two films in 16 days. Uh, which is oh, fuck. almost impressive if it wasn't so shit. And if it wasn't that the first film was filmed in 32-odd days. Uh, it was filmed on Jesus a budget Christ. of 500000 That's 500000 for the third film, 500000 for the fourth film. The film originally was had a script written by Andrew Dervov himself, Eugene in the originals. It was some really convoluted and really cool-sounding film where the UN shot down Chinese missiles, a kind of Y2K thing. And the Jin got involved with politics and the like. Like what I said at the start, seeing Jin in different locations, different uh, levels of severity, a really kind of excellent way of doing it. Uh, the producers went with someone else. I think it was more because of the how expensive his script was and how expensive it looked, and it did look fucking expensive. And Andrew Dervov had a read of the new script and then I'm reliably informed told them to fuck off 
in those words uh, and didn't come back to reprise his role. If, Good if, call. Yeah. Oh, God, if I ever become a millionaire, the first bloody thing I'm going to fund is Andrew Dervov's script of Wishmaster. <laughs> I was looking through trivia as well of the film, going through IMDb, going through Rotten Tomatoes, and generally you'll find kind of um, interviews from the director, from the writer, going over how production was, how long it took to get the make off, how long it took to get the makeup off, that kind of thing. This film, uh, very little trivia, and for some reason, fuck knows why, fuck knows who cares, apparently two out of three people care, uh, trivia including the female demon cup sizes for their bras. I don't know why anyone gives a fuck, but it was on there, double D, if anyone happens to care. So, the start of this film, I changed it up from the first one, it tries to be a remake in some cases, hits the same kind of beats throughout tries to have the trauma at the start come around with the trauma at the end and the main wish girl with her family and friends harassed to try to gain the three wishes. We've removed the 1001 wish idea from the second one and it's just come back to the original make three wishes, hell on earth kind of thing. Open with a main character dreaming about their dad's and mom's death. That this one, rather than the first one where the... Alex, the hero, the protagonist, saved the sister. Uh, in this one, the girl just sits on the side and does fuck all. Yeah, watching her brother go in to save her family and then the car blow up. Yeah, a passive little bitch. So the car is, is car crash this time. It's not a house burning down. And immediately the production is worse. Editing incredibly jarring there are cuts back and forth here and there i think i know why so obviously a car is crashing on not an empty road there's a big wreckage there's a few trees knocked down mm-hmm. i think and a few cars i couldn't really tell because of all the editing that to keep pausing and checking going back the dad is staring behind him and looking at the girl and the girl diana the protagonist of this shouts out daddy there's a wreckage no one notices but her this giant wreckage in the middle of an open country road. And the dad turns around, the car then starts flipping around. It uh, gallivants into the air. Diana gets out with a few minor cuts and bruises, as does the dad. Uh, Oh, sorry, as does the brother. And then the brother goes and says, you know, stay there, stay on the side, on the bank, and rushes back for the bomb and the dad. As he does so, the car blows up into smithereens and they're all killed in that kind of fake hollywood a gas leak has been hit with some you know fire and it's blown up into smithereens that ridiculousness there's a really annoying um post-production filter and all their voices as well this kind of distorted effect that's horrendous to listen to it genuinely hurts painful to go through it all uh, which you get with the gin as well when he starts to imitate voices it sounds like a fucking recorder i got when I was a little kid for Christmas. <laughs> it's just cheap as hell. Can you tell we're being more negative with this one already? This isn't going to be a fun ride. Yeah, I think you kind of expected it because we've been rubbishing it from for the last God knows how long. So. so after reliving her childhood trauma in her sleep, she uh, ascends to the roof of her student building, the character in this. She's about nineteen, twenty. A lot younger, a lot less experienced than the one in the first film. A lot less useful than the one in the first film, but hey-ho. She sits with her legs dangling down onto a kind of secondary roof. And her boyfriend, 
uh, by the name of Greg, comes out from the secondary point. Fuck knows how this building's built, but starts walking around, and this girl taps him on the shoulder with her foot, which I consider more creepy than uh, than endearing, but hey-ho, <laughs> each their own. It makes that really, really annoying horror jump scare noise with fake jump scares. I know it's, it's an early film. It's like 2001, 2000-ish. So it, it's kind of on that cusp of absolute schlocky 2000s horror film that just go for the jump scare over and over again, that ghost-esque thing. But fuck's sake, guys. We don't need a jump scare sound on every little foot tap, every little tap on the shoulder. Those um, red herrings, that's an annoying thing about early 2000s horror and current horror, to be honest. Kind of Annabelle creation style, that Badoom thing, as you just see. You have a character come on screen and then just tap, and then you have this huge sound to startle everyone, and it turns out it's just be their fucking grandma. Yeah. So they converse back and forth, and immediately obvious the acting is fucking horrid, especially from the boyfriend. Dear God. Can this guy not act? The dialogue doesn't help either. It's absolutely dreadful. Later on, uh, the girl has to go off for her job. She works alongside the professor in a museum, kind of dealing with artifacts, dusting them off. And she says, uh, you know, I need to get to my job. The boyfriend asks her away. She says, oh, don't take me away from the thing I love. You wouldn't do, I wouldn't do that to you. And he replies with, the only thing I love is you. This sickly sweet bullshit response. No, no real human would come up with it. It sounds like an AI developed this dialogue in a vacuum, listening to nothing but Andy McDowell 90s films. (laughs) (laughs) This, we cannot understate. Like, when we say these are the worst films that we've watched for this podcast, as of this moment we truly mean that we these are the worst films that we've watched for this podcast as of this moment we're both gonna make absolutely fucking sure that doesn't become a trend i'll say if by if on a weekly basis we say this is the worst film we've ever seen we're gonna have killed ourselves by week four yeah if this podcast ends at any point just call (laughs) the police we're both dead yeah if this continues on a downward trajectory is that it's not only the worst two films we've ever reviewed, uh, closely followed, I should say, by the remake sequel for The Hills Have Eyes. These are by far and away the biggest downgrade in quality for the franchise. So the characters in this one uh, are now students, which, again, mm-hmm. generic cliche horror setting, uh, which has been done well before, isn't fucking done well here. Just uses a really easy... All these are young adults that are just stupid enough to make mistakes and just experienced enough to reasonably get out of them. It's insanely irritating. It's a dialogue, generic, terrible as shit. Including a guy going up to a group of girls, uh, two girls walking along and calling them bimbos. I said quite yeah. Eli Roffy, but without any of the smarts or trying to make the characters unlikable. You know, with Eli Roth. <laughs> As bad as some of the dialogue was, you at least got the impression that he knew the characters were unlikable, and that was his intention. Yeah. In this, they're trying to make you sympathise with these characters. These walking cardboard cutout douchebags. You can't do it. No one in their no. right mind can do it. So, Diana, she 
is, I think, an archaeology student or history student, something like that. It's that generic side of mythology within... Uh, See, I later in the film, they mention she's a TA. I assume she's a TA, but she's helping like the history teacher kind of like go over these like artifacts that are in i don't know if there's like a museum on campus or if it's in the library or something but yeah a museum somewhere <laughs> that she's working at with the lecturer who played by jason connery another fucking connection to the rock there unintentional entirely yep. didn't even <laughs> jason connery who's made up to be this womanizing student sleeping flirtatious scumbag yeah, yeah he's made up to be this like lothario Casanova, big dick, like professor that is banging all his students, and then he just seems like a douchebag that's trying too hard to be liked by people, except for the guys in his classroom. Yeah, he's like a nerdy weedy nothing. Yeah, he's what you'd expect from a professor, uh, and then he's built up as this. I assumed later on in the film, which you don't really get the. Uh, idea that he's womanizing everyone until the gin takes over and i thought i just missed a wish at some point where it was oh i wish that i was attractive to all female students on campus because the film is that fucking um base in its uh, entertainment value sex sex and sex i assumed i missed something yeah but i didn't and it's just he was sleeping and all the women not only is he sleeping with all of them they all fucking want him. Desperately. I genuinely thought that this was like the opening to a porn film. Obviously, he's like, oh yeah, big swinging dick professor and whatnot. Then the gin turns up and he's like, "What? what's your wish? What do you wish for? And he's like, oh, I want to have sex with two of the, oh, the, my two hottest women or some shit like that. And literally two porn stars come out from behind like a wall and walk towards him. Tits out. And it's like, yeah, this is a porn. This is just a porn film. And they literally walk up to him, eat one on each arm and just start making out with him. I think you could cut two minutes of this film at any point and put it at the start of a porn film and reasonably continue it on. Yeah. Any two minutes. Uh, with the museum, cutting into that then, so Diana goes to the museum to start working. Uh, and this is really where I think it's a different gin, or at least I hope it is. Because otherwise, so the logic, the first film, it's a bit ridiculous. So Alex forgets about the jewel and doesn't give a shit about it anymore and lets it just go mm -hmm. object to object and it gets stolen and chaos. So the second film comes in. The second film wasn't, uh, reverted obviously everything that happened in the second film happened those people are still dead there are still problems with that the gym was just retrapped yeah but now the jewel is found in a different object so my only assumption if there's a continuation of the franchise and this is the same jewel is that this jewel was taken from the original artifact moved away a different completely different artifact unrelated to the original was opened up and this jewel was placed in that instead reclosed forgotten about and sent off to the museum to be looked at yeah that if that's the case then uh morgana in the second film literally was like okay he's trapped again let's just let's go to fucking egypt or whatnot find a little 
fuck jewel box or something, put the gem in that, hide it away again, and when someone finds that, we're fucking sweet. Right, uh, we'll, we'll we'll go through the bullet points, but there's stuff that I very quickly want to talk about, just because at this point, I'm, I'm literally going back, I'm very quickly backtracking because I want to get through this. Um, it's literally she finds the gem and kind of opens it up and and then she fucks off back to her dorm room which leaves the professor in the museum on his own. She was like, this is another thing that really annoyed me in the third the fourth film, uh, which isn't put forward in the first and the second. In the first film, when the dock worker finds the jewel, he fucking knows, oh my god, it's an opal the size of my eye. I need to yeah. take this and I need to run. The second film, uh, obviously, the opal is held by the djinn, so it doesn't matter. In this film, she finds the opal, sees, oh, oh my god, that's probably worth millions. I can just be put away and catalogued, and I can ignore that. Mm-hmm. I don't need to immediately go to my professor and say, fucking hell, I found an opal the size of my eye. No. Uh, apparently it's worth yeah, no. uh, dinner, is what the professor says. Comes up to her and says, "Oh, that find. You uh, you having dinner tonight? You got any plans? You want to go out? Oh yeah, because he fucking asks her if she's uh, if she's yeah. He, he's trying to hit on her as well, isn't he? Yeah, he seems to be the only yeah. woman on campus that's immune to his charm. Christ knows why he needed the wish he did. He had his pick and choice of anyone. Yeah, she ends up sodding off, and the professor ends up dealing with." Uh, other stuff within the museum. Professor, as is a recurring trend with these films, is friend-zoned, rightly so. It should probably be called up, probably call police on uh, charges of... Um, oh, what's the term? Hierarchical sexual favours. He's in a position of power. Someone should call the police. Yeah, one calls it grooming, but let's go on. There we go. Yeah, grooming. Perfect. So the gin comes out at this point as Diana has left to the professor and the djinn. Oh, we talked about how the djinn looks. Uh, If I said his appearance of the penis-shaped shoulders was comparable to his voice, sure that'd get across. More than I could put into words. Done it. Perfect visual representation for me. Yeah, you could have just said he sounds like a dick. Uh, Yeah, looks like shit, sounds like shit. He's actually voiced by two people in this, voiced by Jason Connery. While he's in human form, and voiced by uh, John Novak, while he's in gin form, in gin form for both this film and the fourth film, I have a hard time actually deciding which one's worse. I'm leaning towards Jason Connery is worse, but uh, it's it's a toughie. No, I'm just going to say they're equally bad. Uh, so the gin constantly imitates voices through this as well. And I said before, it sounds like a shitty recording device. Not even one I got really a kid. One from like the 80s, where that craze was about after Home Alone, actually, like mid-90s. Those things that you click together. Mm-hmm. And you'd, uh, yeah, record something and play it back. The, all the rage that year that sounded terrible. Yeah, it's this horrible distortion effect that just sounds like it's crappy technology. Uh, every time the gin tries to imitate stuff. Uh, and he, he talks back and forth with the professor. The djinn in this one is a lot more wordy, uh, in a bad way. The djinn... Yeah, he the, d- for... he's not clever with his talking. He's literally just 
It sounds like he's monologue just to monologue. He likes the sound of his own voice, maybe. Which we've already said sounds like shit. Yeah, the chin in the first one, he wasn't subdued, I don't want to say that. He was efficient, I think is the best way of putting it. Yeah. Every single word had a purpose for trying to get the other person to slip up. He was waiting for that moment. Uh, this one, no, God no, he sounds like an annoying whiny brat that you want to punch in the face. Said he goes on and on and on, and it's pointless. And during all of this, he can't at any point get a uh, an easy wish out of anyone. He never coaxes something out like he did in the first one. He never does it organically at all. It's always something no. forced on them. He says, do you want to wish for something? And then they wish for something. It's a- It's not even, oh, do you want to wish for something? Half the time it's like, I'm going to fucking beat you down. Until you wished for something. Perfect one metaphor the... for the writing style in this film. Yeah, in the other films, he it's literally like, I cannot physically do anything magical or anything to you until you wish for it. Where in, in this one, it's like, nah, I'm just going to kick the shit out of you and then when you wish for something, that's when you die. Yeah, this is a djinn who, in the first film, had to walk away from a door because the guy said, I want to see you leave. Literally had to run away. Had no choice in the matter until the guy said something different. It's why, again, I think it's a different gin. It's what I'm going to headcanon because the rules are completely changed. In fact, there's no rules to this one. As you'll see in the fourth film, it takes rules and then it completely removes them. So yeah, as you went forward earlier, the professor uh, talks with the gin back and forth until eventually the professor wishes... Uh, without being scared at all, really, he is a bit jumpy at the start, but it's nothing like in the in the first film or the second film where someone sees the gin and goes, "Oh my god, what the fuck!" and runs for the hills. The professor just goes along with it and just goes, "Yeah, I'm sure nothing bad can come of this." Yeah, it's a professor who studied have... mythology, and it's drilled in that he knows what gin were like back then, how they're depicted, and at no point does he think this might be a bad idea. Uh, but yeah, the djinn uh, ends up asking him to wish for something and the professor wishes that he is loved by two women that he finds the most beautiful in the world, uh, which turn out to be a succubi, succubus, succubuses, female demons, one of which eats his tongue and the, he ends up dead. Yeah. Uh, at which point, I think was the biggest mistake of both of the films, the djinn goes up to Jason Connery's dead body and takes Jason Connery's face, uh, wears it on his own. Uh, and then you get a really horrible effect. In the original, I remember the gin uh, simply had the face attached to him and you see a kind of hair grow on the back of his head and the skin of it wrap round slowly. In this one, it's yeah. done kind of like um, a Star Trek transponder thing. Where you see a blue light fucking flash down and it oh god it's horrible. No, it it's a red light for him. It looks like he's like wreathed in really shit flame. And then Oh, it's Archangel, and it? it's a blue yeah. light. Mm-hmm. Because this yeah. film's about as subtle as a brick to the head. Bathed in red light, and then he ends up wearing Sean Connery's body. Uh Sean Connery. Bathed in red light, and he ends up wearing Jason Connery's body. Jason Connery, far from what Andrew Dervov was, uh, and I'm sure in some films he perfectly casts and he can act fine, 
not in fucking this, not in well, maybe it's just shit. But he's he's not intimidating, Jason Connery. He's not a no. scary presence like Andrew Dervov was. There's always that creepy factor to the guy, and you always had a bit of apprehension in what you're going to do with Jason Connery. His voice is slightly higher, has this inflection where he sounds a little weaker. Just not intimidating in the slightest. I think it says a lot that he was second pick. Second pick. That Andrew Dervon. Mm-hmm. Andrew Dervon was the first. Yeah, get that guy yeah. back. Then, oh well, he's all to fuck off. We're going to have to get someone else now. First, second film was a TV movie as well, of course. This film, TV movie. Uh, you can tell a lot more with this film. If you'd showed it to someone, I think they'd, they'd work out, yeah, that's a TV film. Second, yeah. Second one you could show in cinema. Uh, obviously, the budget is a fifth of the second film and a tenth of the first film, which is also obvious. More more yeah. so in the fourth film than this one. See, I have a, a, a theory that it wasn't actually both films that cost, uh, what, 500000 I think it's like a 750, 250 split. No, I, I think it was literally, I think, yeah, I think it was like 250000 each film. Oh shit! Cause oh yeah, it's said. I know it said that five hundred thousand. It might just be for the whole sixteen days. Yeah, it seems like why am why am I saying no offense? We've literally offended everyone that acts in this film. Fuck All it. offense in this film. <laughs> this film looks, sounds, and is acted like shit. There is literally. I can't even think of a redeeming factor for this. There is literally no redeeming factor for yeah, this entire offence intended for anyone who touched this project and forced us to sit through the entirety. Right, yeah. so, back to this shit. The main character, she, Diana, goes through the same kind of visions that Alex did in the first film and in the second film that Morgana went through. Uh, I said earlier that the characters progressively look less and less pained. In the first film... Alex physically falls unconscious and people mm-hmm. run up to her and say are you okay do you want me to call a paramedic in the second film she looks in severe pain it's kind of like an aneurysm going on uh, in this film mm-hmm. she looks mildly annoyed yeah a bit of uh, constipation maybe <laughs> with the blondness going on she looks like a fucking valley girl trying to do maths it, yeah it's just not great and I, I, I yeah. put that down to both the actor and director you're both shit decides that she needs to go back to the museum to check on the professor. Yeah, and she's uh, her boyfriend, who at this point is like, I don't know, I, I think I'm going to split up with her because I'm not getting... Not, not not getting pussy, but I'm, I'm like not getting any like emotional feedback from her. He's kind of like, mm, I think I'm going to leave. And she's like, no, no, you stay here. I'm going to go check on the uh, pervy professor because... I think I've seen like a something. Then she fucks off, and then her two other friends are walking through the like the the there's like a lounge area or something. Heavily also indicates that this is another literally just the same porn film, just a different scene. It's these two having sex behind a couch while another friend of theirs is watching TV while he's oblivious to them being there. Yeah, they go to have sex behind the couch. They haven't stripped off fully at this point. And I want to reiterate that... Uh, I want to reiterate that this goes on for three fucking minutes. 
of the run time. Yeah. I don't know if I can even call it padding at this point. Uh, they start to have sex behind the couch, and then their mate comes in, opens the door, ignores them, sits on the couch, and they continue. They continue de-dressing and continue having sex. Me, personally, I'd go into a bedroom. I don't know. I'm just maybe a little insecure that way. I prefer my privacy. I'm weird like that. Like, I get it. Some people have a kink for, like, uh, going outside and uh, 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 being outside and having sex in the public area and whatnot. But it it literally feels like this was just tacked on so it would be like an, another sex scene in this film. To, uh, yeah, I, I genuinely don't know what the fuck was going on here. That might be the case, to be fair, because their uh, friend just sits down on the couch like nothing's the matter. Yeah, rolling then... his eyes, going, oh, here we go again, more sex behind me. Yeah, because at some point he hears a noise, looks over his shoulder, but not at them. And then kind of just shakes his head like he had nothing happened and then just goes back to watching whatever. And it was really shit music at this point. Uh, it was like generic 90s punk fucking... Yeah, not quite punk pop, not shit punk band. rock, but um, that kind of... Not EDM music. That, that sound they had, indie punk, they had in the early 90s, uh, the late yeah. 90s, early 2000s, indie punk. That was terrible. Awful. Stop using it. Uh, shit Buffy, basically. Then it cuts to Diana going to the library. Diana finds uh, a book and uh, the artifact and there's some blood on it. And she takes that as, oh, there's been a problem. The gin at this point is trying to track Diana down. Just stay where the fuck you are. <laughs> Can't be that hard just to, just to say, oh, I need to find this one girl. Mm-hmm. Can you go for admin? Not even, like, I need to take her on a trip somewhere, I need to do this, I need to do that, just, oh, can you give me her number? I need to call her. I need to find her. Yeah. So I need to discuss lesson plans. Fucking anything would work. Instead, he goes up to the gin as Jason Connery goes up to the administration for the area and tries to get her to go to a meeting or something or private trip or some shit. Yeah, it was like, oh, I need her to uh, sign these documents because um, we're going on a trip, like, tonight, and uh, we need her to sign this paperwork so that she can go. And he's uh, the fucking admin woman's like, no, if you need it that bad, then you'd know where she is, or you would have got it earlier. I want to know what the fucking rush is. He clearly doesn't need <clears throat> to get it done in one night. Why he doesn't just yeah. say, oh, can you let Diana know I'm looking for her? Yep. Yeah. There you go. Every other film has literally been like, eh, I'll get to you when I get to you. This one's like, no, I'm the Terminator and I am actively hunting you at this point. The administrator but, says no. He goes through on a little rant about, oh, how shit is your job? Where would you want to be right now? And she says, you know what, I want to see the whole place burnt down so I could leave. And then he sets her on fire. Uh, and this, yeah. I think, made me almost genuinely sick. Kind of like um, the VR stuff, the Oculus and the Sony stuff, what that does to you after playing for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. So you see her on fire from the Jin's perspective, and she's burning away. And then for some unbeknownst fucking reason, they decide to put on a distortion effect, or a blur effect, sorry, 
while Diana is watching through her, you know, while she's looking at the her gym. Vision, yeah, yeah, while she's going through her visions. While Diana's going through her visions, they've put on this little blur effect. And it's horrendous to look at. Every The other films have literally made it very clear when she's having a vision and when it's literally just coming from his point of view. This one's like, no, no, let's just put a bit of a blur effect and annoy people so we can really hit home that she's having a vision. She's having a bit of constipation and she's a bit iffy about it. Yeah, it, it literally after this scene... It's uh, her running up to the built the admin building. Obviously, the uh, I wouldn't even. There's not even a fire truck. There's literally nothing. There's literally one security car, I think. Yeah, there's one security car, there's... one security guard, and a little gurney with a body bag on it. There's a body inside the thing, and the security guard, hilariously terrible, like the least authoritative prick in history. As she walks up to the body, he says, hey, what are you doing? She then unzips yeah. it, looks at it, squeals, and then as she starts walking off, he doesn't run after her. He just goes, hey, come back here. Oh, I can't be fucked. Yeah. Go ahead. This never comes up again. So we come right now to the Jin acting as the professor who's in a class on the Trojan War. And I think this, for me, yeah, big one of the biggest issues... Uh, is the known quantity, as I said. The known quantity, the lack of a stranger, the lack of being able to have this game of cat and mouse mm-hmm. in a system. Yeah. So in the first two films, you know, the djinn... In the first film especially, in the first film, the djinn had this cat and mouse thing where he, you know, find out a little bit more about Alexandra's location... He'd then find another one of her friends, deal with that. Alexandra would try to take the friend away from him, his influence. Uh, he'd get them back and he'd deal with that situation. He'd find more about her. He'd deal with more of her friends. And it, it's a back and forth situation of him yeah. slowly encroaching, finding more and more out as she finds more and more out about his history. In the second one as well, they have a dynamic where the djinn's getting more and more souls. He's getting closer and closer to his goal. Meanwhile, Morgana is finding more and more about him, uh, and it's a race to the finish. In this film, having it being a known quantity, having it being a known person, outside of that stranger dynamic, kind of ruins that. Because you know who the person is, you know where they are, and they know where you are instantly. There's no real finding out about each other. It's just a chase at this point. Uh, Certainly she, to some extent, Diana learns about the djinn, but the djinn doesn't need to know shit about Diana. He knows everything already. Just no, um... Yeah, yeah. This, this entire film is literally, like you said, it's a chase of her just trying to get away from him and him just trying to catch her. There's no escalation. There's no, like, stakes, really. It's literally just, this is what's happening. Less Sherlock Holmes, more Benny fucking Hill. Yeah. Right, so the Jin currently acting as the professor starts to you know perform a lecture on the Trojan War. At this point, yeah, the female students flirt with him. Almost all of them. He calls one of them a tramp. Which mm-hmm. is, what a dick! Uh, it's not. It's not that um, kind of cool charisma that the first one had. It's just being a twat. <laughs> I don't know. How, I yeah, don't know how else to put it. It's that. It's no, simple. You're pretty much right. Yeah. 
the male students openly say that the teacher sleeps with female students. And yeah, mm-hmm. this continues back and forth. Uh, the Jin desperately begs to know the location of Diana constantly through the lesson. Just where is she? Do you know where she is? Do you know when she'll be here? It's pathetic. It's not that cold calculating us. It's this desperate kind of crack addict looking for his next shot. Yeah, it's like a lovesick puppy. He's like, is Diana here yet? Do you know where Diana is? Tell me when Diana gets back, please. And it's just... just you're a fucking, like, 6,000-year-old gin that can grant wishes to whoever the fuck asks even a relative, like, suggestion at a wish. Just stop. You don't need to be fucking intimidating, like, oh, I'm going to fucking kill everything, I'm going to fuck everything, and I'm going to do this, that, and the other. It's just move on. Just This one, there's literally no character to literally anyone. No, and especially the djinn. I think yeah. the djinn has turned from this sarcastic, arrogant, egotistical, omnipotent being can beat you and almost will beat you unless you come up with a genius method to outsmart the thing into just a generic prop for an antagonist it's just the big bad that's coming to get you this big monster that's scary and will run after you and he'll he'll frighten you or jump out and he'll slash you with his big claw this isn't a physical being this isn't a physical adversary it's meant to be a uh, a mental one He's meant to test your wits, not your fucking strength of arms. Uh, but yeah, he goes through this lecture. Poppy dog sad, keep constantly asking after Diana. Does nothing through the lecture. Doesn't grant a wish. They don't make the scene interesting. Nothing happens at all. The scene was entirely pointless. Mm-hmm. Literally, uh, I'm I'm looking at your notes and uh, you've cut out a large section, like a 10 15 minute part of this film and it is completely understandable why because literally fuck all happens in this like little 15 10 15 minute section basically a little quick rundown of what happens in between what you'll note is they all leave uh the classroom they all go out diana phones her boyfriend and is like look don't look up just turn left and walk around the building, you'll find me. Click. Gone. Then Diana's like, okay, now that you're here, he's a djinn, he's fucking blah blah blah, and her friends are, think she's crazy, obviously, because they don't know what the fuck's going on. Although he was talking about a djinn in class, but that's a coincidence, it's fine. Just come with me, read these books, whatever. And then it goes to him going into the dorm rooms and asking someone there and it's like have you seen Diana? No. I'm literally running through this because it's fucking pointless. Um, and then uh, one of her friend's boyfriends goes yeah I saw her going over blah blah and then as he's going over there they come back and go into the dorm rooms then he goes he comes back to the dorm room and you understand where this is going. Sleep, Fuck all yeah. happened. Yeah. Literally, you could have slept through a 20-minute section of this film and nothing had fucking happened. So this is where it starts to pick up again, I guess. Pick up when in the, the same sense that the orgy at the old people's home picks up when Countdown is turning on. 
pretty much. Basically, the Jin and Diana are now in the same fucking building, at least. He, he kind of gets pointed in the right direction of where Diane's room is. As as they come out of her room, uh, they see her uh, see the Jin walking up to her up to her like he's in some kind of rush, and then they literally just go, "All right, fuck it, we'll go this way," and run a completely opposite way and end up outside anyway. Yeah, and this calm, collected villain turns into a fucking maniac that charges after them. I think it needs to be said as well at this point that the Jin uh, hasn't really uh, offered out any wishes. He's done one. Two. Yes. The Jin has given out two wishes so far. In the first film, you've got the shit at the start, the madness within Persia. Uh, you've got Josh dying. You've got the blind guy. You've got the hobo. All within about 30, 35 minutes. In the second film, all sorts of shit in the prison uh, at the start with the freeze, the I don't want to be born, loads of stuff. In this mm-hmm. one, two. Fucking two. I know your effects aren't as good. I know you've not got the same budget that you had. You can be smart. You can come up with stuff. Anything will do. I think at this point they split up. Diana and her boyfriend go off to the church for some reason. Oh, rats right, because her boyfriend's like, I know someone that can help. They run to the church and the gin's already in there. And one of the girls, yeah, one of the girls that they thought were their friend is now in the background, apparently working with the gin. Uh, because she finds the professor just so attractive. Yeah, she finds the attra- uh, professor so attractive and she wanted to lose a bit of weight. Skinny girl. Yeah. Jason Connery, I'm not going to say he's an ugly looking guy. He's a he's a decent 6 out of 10, 7 out of 10. And that power mm-hmm. dynamic maybe puts you up another slot. For fuck's sake, he ain't Brad Pitt. He ain't George fucking yeah. Clooney. And then, obviously, girl wishes to lose weight. So, Jin's like, okay, I'll actually use my power for fucking once. And kind of starts melting her. She goes Ish. for a liposuction thing, to and be fair. It, it looks shit. I'm happy that it didn't go there. You've seen that episode of Doctor Who where they get the fat that comes out of the people. Yeah, the adipose thing. Yeah, yeah, that one. yeah. I wouldn't have minded yeah. that, actually. Just a little yeah, that would have been pretty good. Yeah, she starts falling to the ground, screaming, as I think he says it's a forced liposuction or something. And, and then he keeps taunting Diana, like, you can wish her pain to stop. You can end it for her. When she's literally close to death anyway, she's like, I wish her pain to stop. Then obviously that kills her. Fucking idiot. To be fair, I've got to give it to the gin. He's at least more uh, straightforward this time. It's not a, end my suffering, I'll cause you a thousand times more suffering, followed by your death. Yeah. At least it's instantaneous for once. Right, so if you're watching through these films uh, and could tolerate this up to this point, yeah, stop now. Turn it off and uh, pretend this never happened uh, because this is where a film about a magical being that can do anything jumps the shark. It's safe to mm-hmm. say. Go ahead, mate. Okay, so at this point, he's literally just starting to beat up on her boyfriend. No no questions asked, just started to beat up on him. No, wish no required. wishes, no nothing. Yeah. Um, and then the girl, uh, Diana, 
uh, obviously, she decides, hey, I'm in a church, whatever. I'm going to invoke the, sp- uh, I wish to insp- invoke the spirit of Archangel Michael to defeat you. So, and she magically summons a fucking angel and it starts to take over her body. But because Greg is a fucking idiot, he pushes her out of the way and's like, no, the, the, the angel can be taking my taking over me which i don't think that's how the wish works if you kind of invoke a spirit into yourself i think the spirit would spirit would follow you wherever the fuck you go even if you are pushed to the side even if it does look like a fucking tractor beam from the sky greg for some reason gets a new voice um, deeper and shit still and then the jinn for some reason is like haha okay I've just summoned I've just summoned my destroyer whatever I'm good Just kick your ass and they start as you quite eloquently put it a they start a power ranger fight in the center of the church they get it, out two yeah. swords they start hitting each other back and forth in these shitty looking rubber prosthetics the swords are thicker than a fucking plank of wood it's yeah it's horrible it's horrendous. Yeah, these these are like super powerful beings that can carry around like fucking whatever they want. And they struggle to fight with these shit ass swords. And they aren't even swinging them that forcefully, quickly. Nothing. It's literally like clack. The choreography is garbage. Um, obviously, because it's not the end of the film, Archangel is losing the fight. And throws the djinn to the floor. Yeah, what well, he basically stands in front of an altar as the djinn comes towards him, grabs him by the hand, and just tosses him behind him. And I, <laughs> I don't think I can. I don't think I can put into words how rubbish it is. It's it's worse than crappy amateur wrestling. Far less effort put into it. Far less fun. <laughs> and amateur wrestling's made up. Well, Greg and Diana. I shouldn't say Greg. Michael. And Diana at this point retreat to the university. Uh, the gin recovers any wounds it's taken and starts running back as well. It reverts back into the form of Jason Connery and is stopped by the weird haram that seems to dog this twat around. Yeah, and this is the the one woman that I know that has actually gone on to do. I wouldn't say she's gone on to do amazingly, but she's been in better stuff than this. So. I'll say that she's a leg up on all of her co-stars from this. Yeah, she could turn up an episode of Crime Watch and have been a step up. Doesn't matter mm. what she turned up in. But she's gone on to do like Supernatural and she's gone on to be in like Saw 2. She's been in pretty decent stuff. The sh- Not amazing, but The shit you know. 4 and yeah. the film with the uh, Sam and something, the brothers. Yeah, Sam and Dean. Winchester. Uh, I think that's the, yeah, yeah. I like Supernatural. Um, but she, in this, she literally plays one of these harem girls that's literally like, okay, you guys, you girls go out. I'm going to stay here with the professor. I'll be back later. Wink, wink. Ha, ha, ha. He caught me undressing earlier, so... Oh, we skipped that because it was fucking pointless too. Um, so they have a fucking pointless conversation about her being interested in older men and... Uh, he asks if he wants to uh, wants her if she wants him to break her heart, and she's like, "Yes, can totally break my heart." 
So he explodes her heart in the chest with a very shit looking um, heart pumping visual thing on the on her chest. Only a shame that Tony Braxton's nowhere to be seen. It cuts to the point where he's like, ha ha ha, fine, I'm going to go outside now. And then it cuts to Diane and Archangel, because apparently there's fucking angels in this now. Fine, whatever. Um, they're talking about how they can kill the djinn. Kill it. Kill it. Like the thing that in the first two movies I said is impossible to do because he's eternal. He is literally immortal. Cannot kill immortal things. Should be said as well. The thing that said it had nothing to do with any religion. Hell, heaven, anything that was created. As opposed to that. Apparently this one isn't. Yeah, it said, ah, fuck it. We're at war for God knows how long. Let's fight again. It's basically said that the sword that Archangel Michael kind of was summoned here with is it can kill the djinn, but only in the hands of the maker, which is the person that kind of... The person that brought woke. him into the world. In this yeah. case, it's Diana. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the angel Michael says that she can't have the sword until she's ready. You can only hold the sword when you will risk your own life to save the planet or to save the earth or whatever. And then basically she goes to grab it. Well, he just lets her grab it and then it starts going on. It starts to burn in in fire. And then it's got really shit burns all over it is the best way I can describe that. And then he's openly shown that he can heal wounds. He blows on her out arm that the the wounds go away. So he could, in the next couple of scenes, fucking heal anyone that gets wounded by this fucking thing. But whatever. I'm going to ignore that because the film did. Well, Michael decides that until Diane's ready, they should avoid the gin at all costs, which is a fair idea, given that you actually can't kill it until she's ready to sacrifice herself. And so what they decide to do is to stay on campus, not drive away immediately and get as far away from here as possible. No, they remain there and begin going room to room, uh, hoping to evade the guy for like a fucking Scooby-Doo cartoon. The Archangel's fucking useless, not teaching her how to fight, not doing anything of any worth. You could have summoned Lindy Beige and it would have been more useful than this prick. Just teach her some actual sword play anything so at this point they've escaped fuckhead i'm just gonna call him fuckhead and then fuckhead walks into this school where apparently one of her other friends is hiding because she realizes he's a djinn now i don't know yeah you've had a few of these happen so during the whole scene with the theater Michael and Diana have a vision of one of their friends getting killed and they Michael decides, you know, you're not ready yet, can't do this. He gets impaled on ball spikes or something. After mm-hmm. wishing that the djinn would blow him, and I feel like the djinn at that point could have just gone, sure, your soul's now mine, you fucking idiot. Yeah. Yeah, but then as the other friend, which is kind of the uh, tipping point for Diana, friend is in a mice laboratory and thing rat lab uh, with a load of cages around she's hiding under a table uh, i think the only actual point where the gin takes a wish out of hand 
in this film. The I girl, genuinely can't remember what she wishes for. Yeah, the girl says, I wish I had some place to hide. And at which point the djinn turns around the corner and says, wish granted. And then proceeds not to hide her at all. Says, yeah. no one will find you here. And sticks her head first into a rat cage. And at first I assumed she was going to turn into a rat. And then yeah, hide her that way. But no, he just puts her head in a rat cage. And the rats eat her. It yeah. eat her eyes. Eats. Eat her neck a little bit. Nibble on her ear. And lips. And her friends find her body. Quite obvious. Quite easy to spot. It's the whole bleeding thing on the floor. The, the lipless, eyeless, earless body that's still moving and whimpering on the floor. I'd argue she was more hidden before she made that wish. Most likely, yeah. I'm absolutely okay with you kind of messing with their wishes and just, oh, you want to hide, do you? Well, you can hide while on Mars. Or I'll stick you in this cupboard then and chop you into little pieces. Anything. Not... I'm going to make you far more fucking obvious to find. Literally the antithesis of your wish. Right, so yeah, they find the body and the djinn finds them as well. Uh, And we get shitty sword fight number two as Michael and the djinn fight back and forth. Diana runs to her car. At some point, Michael gets hit. He starts losing. He runs into the car as he impales the gin with the spear. He gets in the car. The gin starts running along like a fucking 28 days later zombie trying to run to deal with the car and they start driving off. He jumps on the car. I think this is a point where I was like, okay, I'm getting like like a shit version of the Terminator 2 where the, the liquid metal Terminator is running after the police vehicle that they're all in. Oh God, yeah. No, that's, that's far better. Because he, he's hanging off the roof and they're like, she's going from side to side to try and knock him off. She's fine. You'd do that in a car. Whatever. Yeah, and rather than going for the kind of really fun, you know, having a spiked hand and serving it through the roof, uh, yeah. having them dodge out the way, he just grabs them through the window that they've yeah. left open and seat seatbelts off. Yeah, he's literally hanging on the top of the roof, literally staying in the middle with his hands literally just going on both sides, grabbing both of them. At one point, Greg's pulled out of the window and like he, I think he like punches him and he goes back into the car. Really stupid shit. And then she knocks the gin com- like almost completely off the car, so he's literally hanging off Greg's side window. And then they scrape him against another car and then almost instantly have another crash that kind of imitates the opening scenes for this shit house of a film. Where, okay, instead of I'm going to stand on the sidelines, I'm going to actually go and save people this time. So she goes up and gets Archangel out of the passenger seat. Yeah, I think it's the trying to circle back round like they did in the first film with the burning building. Yeah. And have the girl take a more active role again. Start, yeah, passive, sitting on the sideline like a little bitch. In this film, to be fair though, while she was sitting on the sideline, she was about 14 and mm-hmm. told to sit on the sideline. I don't think you can really call this character growth. More, she's older and in massive danger. Yeah. And no one else is going to save your boyfriend. 
I think when she ran to the car, grabbed the guy out, I think that's meant to be the moment where it's, oh, look, she'll actually sacrifice her own life for this because that car's going to blow up in a moment. Yeah, which obviously it does. And then they all, uh, they kind of stand off to the side while the car explodes, thinking, hey, we've done a good job here. They look over and the gin is kind of like jigsaw puzzling his arms and legs back together. Like, it's more like when you've had a fold-up mattress, a uh, blow-up mattress, you folded it up and you're just bringing it out. Instead of, like, unfolding it and starting the uh, pump or whatnot, you literally leave it folded and start pumping it from there and it starts to unfold because of air. It li- It's literally like his body is doing that. That's a it's more unconventional shit. metaphor. Yeah, I I don't know how else to explain it. It looked shit. (laughs) Is basically what I'm trying to get at. And then, because they're like, oh, he's going to be okay in about ten minutes because it's taking the piss. They run up to the roof of the university for some reason, even though they literally could have ran anywhere else. Anywhere else far less deadly. And then one event leads to another. That yeah. I, there's basically another fight goes back and forth between the gin uh, the goes back and forth between the Power Ranger monster and the Power Rangers. Uh, eventually, Diana grabs the gin onto the side of the roof. She's about to fall off. The gin falls off with her. He, she stabs him. They fall down. No, she goes. To, she goes to jump off. There's a ship blur speed effect, so the gin catches in midair, and then. Archangel throws the sword to her. She stabs him in the chest. They both fall off the roof. She lands on him and the hilt of the sword, which I think would have killed them, to be fair. Yeah, it'd have killed both of them, falling on anything at that height. Oh no, it does. She dies, and then Archangel Michael drops a single tear, revives her to life, and then you see Greg on the roof still, and you're like, the f- fuck is this film yeah greg comes back unpossessed and uh they live happily ever after as the planks of wood they've always yeah. been should be said greg uh, the actor who plays him much better as the archangel mostly because the archangel has no personality <laughs> just played to suit that was terrible and the fourth film arguably is worse uh, mm, the it wasn't overtly like I'm going to fucking murder everyone in here this time. It was a bit like it was very obvious what he was doing in this in the fourth one, but it was still better than the third one. At least hit like up to a point. Really? For me, yeah. No, I hated the fourth one more. I don't know if it's because I, I watched them back to back and was angry. Oh, I watched them back to back too, but. Right, uh, I suppose we should get into it and then I'll explain. Yeah, so, uh, cast and crew, the director, once again, Chris Angel, as I said, he was doing this back-to-back over a 16-day period. Uh, The writer this time is John Benjamin Martin, who did a film called The House Next Door, which has got the most mundane title of a horror film I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) Uh, Acting-wise, Michael Trusco, who plays Stephen Verdor, this film's version of Andrew Dervoff and Jason Connery, uh, who's also been in Battlestar Galactica, 
which is actually a good show. Uh, Tara Spencer Narin, Narin, who plays Lisa Burnley, uh, who's our protagonist for the fourth film, who was in an animated version of a show called Corner Gas, which is a show about a petrol station that also had a film and apparently like two spin-offs. Apparently it's got okay. a whole fucking universe to it. Uh, John Novak comes back as the gin while it's in gin form. Also plays the the uh, three idiot gins, which I'm going to refer to as the three stooges for the mm-hmm. rest of this, who fail at all points in the film to get what they want. And then uh, finally we've got the boyfriend of Lisa Sam, played by Jason Thompson, who was in a film called The Young and the Restless. Yeah. Budget. Yeah, she said it's either 500,000 or it's 250,000, depending on how they were uh, dredged out between the two films. And this one, God knows how, has a better critic rotten score than Wishmaster 2. It should be said all of them are rotten. Mm-hmm. It's still like a critic score of 20%, but I'd argue that's 21% too high. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. So, I want to point out that this <laughs> this also felt like the opening to a porn film. Well, uh, we begin mm-hmm. technically with uh, narration before we get to the softcore, not even, I can't even say softcore porno, the porno. Yeah. Uh, narration, same narration, I think, word for word from the first film about the gin's nature born from fire stuff without anger scrim of course uh which honestly feels like sacrilege it's uh yeah it's it's horrible it's horrible uh so yeah then we get to yeah the softcore porno which is overlaid entirely by that edm indie uh late 90s songs that we were talking about which yeah the music tracks in this film yeah they are dog shit uh and more sinister than in any of the other films. The soundtracks in this are used almost entirely to mask over the subtle uh, sound designs and subtle sound production that you have to put in a lot of these films. So footsteps in films, obviously quite quiet, usually. They don't always get picked up on sound, and you have to add that into post. And to mask that often, what they'll do is put music tracks at a ridiculously high volume so you don't even think about that sort of stuff. And that's what they did constantly through this film. They just had music that masked over every other piece of sound and sound design in the whole thing just to go, yeah, we don't have to add in sound effects whatsoever in this one now. It's just lazy. Yeah, it sounds right. Purely lazy, especially in a horror film where sound is... 60-70% of the film. If you fuck up on sound, you've fucked up on your film. But yeah, actual hardcore porno. Yeah, so it it starts out like a mimic, well, a shit mimic of like every fucking relationship movie ever. Girl and her fucking troubled boyfriend with a motorbike and a fucking leather jacket walk in and they're like, hey, we bought a new house. Nah. Nudity, he, there's, they're fucking on it, and the bed breaks, and they're like, ha 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 ha, whatever, and then, no, yeah, the bed breaks, 
Uh, yeah. Their breaks of music's going on. It just kind of cuts down. It's kind of similar to a toned-down Dolomite. Though here, it's not charming or funny. It's just tragic. Uh, uh, and then he starts ripping off Titanic. Yeah. Like, it, it's literally him drawing her in the Titanic pose, but without the giant fucking jewel, because I assume they can't afford it. All that happens, which becomes immediately pointless because it cuts three years to three years later. Yeah, in something they could have hand-waved with a couple pictures of them having fun as a couple. Yeah. A couple just, oh, you remember that four years ago when we went to that beach and we had so much fun and that two years ago when we did this and that. Anything would have worked here and you could have skipped so much. There's so much padding in this film. So, yeah, she's driving up to her house, mm-hmm. which is uh, their lawyer's, uh, Stephen. Uh, it's a simple tracking shot. It starts with an establishing shot around the neighbourhood, taking her through the houses. You see it's a suburb done really badly because you can't see the houses properly and you don't see the house she's going into. Then it tracks her from uh, her car up to the door, edits about a million sodding times as it cuts back and forth and you barely understand what's fucking going on and there's a load of foliage in the way so you can't even see where she's going (laughs) I get the impression this was less let's get an editor to go through this and more let's throw the film reel in the air and cut it with some scissors and see what happens Uh, she walks up to the door opens it up and then I don't know how to put it it just looks like a TV film how they open the door and let her in you see their backs, the face isn't to the camera at all, the sound's bad, uh, it's badly exposed, it just it felt amateurish. And yet, a conversation we come up again against the friend zone trope, which is pretty much the basis of this entire film. Yeah. Uh, I think at some point the lawyer literally says that he can treat her better than her current boyfriend can. It, ripping almost word for word the lyrics of that Shawn Mendes song, Treat You Better. And he's obviously their lawyer. He's getting them through some fucking lawyer shit. Whatever. I don't... Fuck off. And then they he gives her a gift and it's like oh yeah, we, I thought you might like this. Like ancient fucking... Ancient Persian shit. Yeah. Whatever. Thought you might like this. I've clearly spent a shitload of money on it because it's it looks like a fucking relic. Well, it's made to look like a fucking relic. Yeah, um, and they drop it on the ground, and in this film, that's enough for the ruby to fall out. He goes to kiss her, she pulls back, drops the fucking stone, she goes to pick it up, and then that's like, oh, okay, you got the fucking demon attached to you now. I mean, in the first film, you had a uh, statue that had to fall down and break open. In the second film, you know, shots were fired. Mm -hmm. Shit was destroyed. In the third film, granted, it was opened relatively easily, but it's an archaeology student dealing with it. Yeah. In this film, it's a random box that costs nothing, that they drop on the ground, pretty much, and the opal just falls out. Mm -hmm. Uh, Who the fuck put it in there? And why didn't they put any extra security? Not even a padlock. (laughs) Yeah. You know this thing can end the universe. 
I want to point out, I assume that this like had a really shit like weld or something on it, maybe. Because the lawyer's like, all right, it, it's like an ancient box or whatever. He he, they uh, she drops it when she goes. Uh, he goes to kiss her, and instead of going, oh fuck, there's a giant fist-sized fucking opal in there. He just goes, oh so, yeah, I guess we're not kissing yet. Like the. F- if I gave someone a gift and a fucking giant opal fell out of it, I'd be like, oh, fuck, I'm, I I gave you the wrong gift. <laughs> Just quickly run into your uh, kitchen, find a tissue box and write ancient Mesopotamian <laughs> shit on it and give her that. Yeah. This is yours. Opal's mine. Should say, as she's hitting on him, this girl has a paraplegic boyfriend who the lawyer is actively working to help. Yeah, it's basically in. It's not told. It's insinuated that he fell off his bike at some point and he was then paralyzed, and he hasn't. Like, they make it a very heavy point that he can't use his dick anymore. Yeah, it's because they try to have a message in this one, for some reason. Of love isn't all about sex. Yes, we're not as shallow as you people. We didn't need that taught to us. I don't Thanks e- anyway. I didn't even realise that was a message they were trying to get across. I just I would I genuinely just thought, we're dicks. This guy can't use his dick. She wants to fuck. That's it. But yeah, this guy grabs the opal and says, Oh, this opal's here and she says, Oh, don't worry about it. He says, Oh, I'll I'll have it appraised for you. She says, Yeah, that's a good idea. Why? Fucking I'll give you the amount of money this thing's worth and everything. It's not a gift at that point, is it? It's just bribery. Yeah. What a pathetic specimen. So, at this point, yes, but yeah, right. So she leaves and she starts to go back to her owned house that her now paraplegic boyfriend and her own. The lawyer kind of lets shows her out and whatnot. And as he goes to put the gem back into his wall safe. He starts hearing the voice. Obviously, it's the gin just fucking monologuing as he usually does. Yeah, it cuts back and forth a bit between the lawyer and uh, the protagonist, Lisa. Eventually, it cuts to night time. The gin turns off the power in the lawyer's home. Wait, her name's what? Lisa? Yeah, her name's Lisa. Yeah, I didn't even catch that in this one. No, I didn't. I just got it from the... Uh, <laughs> as soon as you said IMDb. Lisa. But yeah, uh, Stephen in his home with the opal in his safe. Uh, the power's turned off, which is something the gin does. Mm-hmm. What a dick. Uh, Stephen walks through. The gin's hiding in a closet like a like some sort of coward. Mm-hmm. Uh, hiding in the darkness as Stephen stands there talks back and forth with the guy the guy talks in really pretentious riddle speak not clever it's not fun it's just stupid uh, and eventually you know they go back and forth with what do you wish for blah blah blah, blah. and Stephen says I wish you'd stop speaking in riddles which is yeah I can live with that this apparently gives the gin the power to kill Stephen obviously <laughs> And the djinn tells Stephen his plans. After killing Stephen, takes his face, puts it on him, and then says to himself, without anyone around, your identity will offer me easy access to the waker. 
because this film thinks you're as stupid as it is. To be fair, they were probably like, oh, fuck it, I'm not interested in this point. So they were probably like, here you go, this is something to be interested in, you know. And everyone was what, still like, like... shiny, jangly keys? Yeah. At a few points in this film, it feels like someone's jingling keys in front of your face. The CG light effects in this are worse than anything so far, in the third film included. I don't know quite how, between the third and the fourth film, it got worse, but it did. Given they were shot at the same time. Yeah. Jin, once again, incredibly unintimidating. Uh, the guy who plays Steven, I could fucking take him. The known quantity element continues to ruin that cat and mouse dynamic that the first and the second film had. Just, I'm going to run out of synonyms for bad at some point. I'm going to need a thesaurus for this show. So cutting to uh, Alex, Alex, cutting to Lisa and Sam back at the apartment. You see now Sam's in a wheelchair and spinning along. Uh, Lisa talking with Sam. She seems quite up to the relationship. Sam's a bit distant. To be honest, it's not a bit distant. He's just an arsehole. A dick, yeah. For the entire film. Unreasonably so. Even when he gets his legs back later, he's still a prick. Like, right, so he sits there watching porn when she walks into the door and he's just watching porn sitting in his chair and he's like, yeah, you don't fucking come over and watch if you don't if you're not interested. She came over to see how you were doing, you fucking dick. She didn't come over and was like, "Oh, you're watching porn. Let's watch." Basically, he's like, "Oh, you came back from the lawyer's house." Well, I suppose like he heavily insinuates like, "Oh, you know what his dick tastes like," and, and like shit like that. She, he doesn't say that. He have, he heavily insinuates that she's cheating on him with the lawyer, which. At this point in the film, there is literally no evidence to that. There's no... I, I get that he's probably, like, depressed and all that. Fine. Whatever. But... Well, it's made all the worse, given that every single time that uh, Stephen comes in, he offers Sam to go with them. Yeah. Whenever they say, oh, we're going to the office, we're going for dinner, he always says, Sam, you want to come with us? Clearly not cheating. If yeah. that's the case, and if they are, you're letting it happen. We're going to sit. Point. Yeah, we're going to let you sit there and watch. We're like, no, they're inviting you out because you're fucking depressed, and that you, they want you to go out. Fair enough. Yeah, the dude is a douche and still tried to kiss her. It's it's not on his part that he doesn't want the cheating to happen. It's just she's not interested. So, fuck off. So yeah, cut to the morning. Uh, and they're eating breakfast, and Stephen comes in, unannounced, as it seems, with the door unlocked. It's America, and to be fair, a lot of places are just like, yeah, leave the door open, it's fine. Fair enough. Yeah, so Stephen comes in, uh, sees them making breakfast, and says, oh, do you want to come down to my office? I think we can deal with your uh, lawyer's stuff. I think we can deal with your case now. And Lisa says, oh, yeah, I'll come over. Uh, do offer for Sam to come, but he says, no, no, you can just go fucking private. I don't want to watch that. They're asking you to go to deal with your case, mate. Do you not think that's important yeah. for you to be there for? It's literally your case. It's not hers. 
she's just your girlfriend. If you were married, then I'd I'd be like, okay, no, she can deal with it. It's fine. Yeah, they go to the office, uh, Lisa and Stephen, and talk back and forth. The dialogue in this, I said, it's incredibly wordy, and it's got no weight to it. It's just very floaty. Uh, the dialogue fairly pointless. Doesn't hold up at all. In the first one, said every word had a purpose. Every single one, every phrase, led on to a mistake from the victim. In this one, that just goes on and on and on and on. So he tries to get to wish that they get a good court case, and she eventually does. Mm-hmm. And as she does so, the camera zooms in on her face. I don't know. Yeah, it just zooms in on her face in this horrible, cheesy zoom effect that isn't endearing at all. It's not good whatsoever. Uh, and she wishes that the court case goes well, that they get a payoff. So he then calls up uh, the person who's responsible or the manufacturer who's responsible for the fault in the motorbike, whatever, and yeah, sends over a fax or teleports a fax to the guy's desk saying mm-hmm. that he wants uh, a settlement of 10 million and the guy who runs the motorbike manufacturing stuff that caused the fault said you know if you're, you're taking the piss mate we're not going to settle for that and then the gin makes the guy cut himself and start basically over the phone in literally no con- like covert terms is basically like yeah, you'll be cutting your own nose off to get rid of this settlement and blah, blah, blah. And he cuts off his own nose. He fucking, like, like chews off his tongue or some shit. Like, he does loads of fucked up stupid shit. At some point, he signs a document and sends it over. Yeah. At this uh, point, he's got blood all over his hands, so I don't know why the blood wasn't faxed as well, but whatever. Yeah, carry on. And he ends up, shitting himself in the mouth uh, following sending facts off. Now, I'm not a lawyer. I've not really dealt with the legal system, I'll be the first to admit that. But I feel that once one of the parties has killed themselves directly after the document was faxed over, questions would be asked. Something would come up in court going, you sure there was no blackmail or extortion when one of the parties sent an unreasonable sum over and killed themselves directly after? Yeah, some suspicious play here. Yeah, that I feel that that would uh, tip me over the edge, probably. Uh, talking about voiding claims in court, the woman then uh, also wishes that Sam can walk again uh, after they go to dinner. Various other things should be said as well. There are no wishes. In this film, really. It's completely void of them. Mm-hmm. There's nothing fun that happens. One woman wishes that she could be kissed. Like she saw another table being kissed. And uh, kisses a guy. And that's it. That That's the level of wish we're talking about here. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, the girlfriend Lisa at dinner with Stephen, once again. Even after being told, hey... We've got 10 million. Sam doesn't want to attend any celebratory dinners. Yeah. Anything. He's a miserable cunt. Yeah, he's like, oh, let's just figure out our split and then you can fuck off. And he's... 
what? But anyway, yeah, they they go. Her and this lawyer go out for food, and um. Yeah, she eventually wishes that uh, Sam could walk again. Yeah, and as I said, one guy's committed suicide. Settlement's just been ended. Uh, and Sam can suddenly walk again. I really feel like the police would say something. I feel like the FBI at ten million would get involved and say, "Hold on, fucking sec. This guy can walk, and this other guy killed himself." Yeah, I, I smell bullshit. I think the fraud is happening about now. So yeah, the gin as well during all this. Like we talked about the innate charisma and the law of uh, Andrew Durdov. Part of that was in the amount of pleasure he took during his reign as the djinn. Whenever he got his weight, he looked so happy. Andrew Durdov himself really enjoyed uh, tantalising in the moments of the misery of the characters in that. Just grasping onto every little bit of malice his character could. It was beautiful to watch. In this one, he takes no pleasure in it. He seems apathetic to death. He's just, yeah, that guy's dead. Yeah, another guy's dead. He doesn't even he's kill that many people. Like, no. In this, one of the waitresses while they're having the food, look, she sees a couple kissing in one of the corners, and she was like, "I wish someone would kiss me like that." And literally every man in this, oh, actually every person in this restaurant except for those two. And the couple in the back go up to her and make out with her. No headbutting her to death or any of that shit. Like, the other films were like, oh, we'll find an imaginative way to kill you using the words you just said. So, yeah, we fall into the major plot of the rest of the film now, mm-hmm. where the, uh, the djinn is less trying to end the world and bring Reign of Terror from the rest of the djinn. And he's more falling in love with Lisa uh, and wants to gain her affection. Yeah. And it's one of the worst things you've ever seen in your life. I think they try to imply that Stephen's own emotions are getting involved with the gins. Uh I feel like that would have happened in the third film, if that was the case. Yeah. It's the same director. Over 16 days, you think someone would mention the plot hole here. The inconsistency through these, but hey ho, that's what we're given. Like so, I just want to point out. So at this point, uh, the first film was a horror film. Uh, the second one was kind of like a offbeat horror comedy. Third one was an action film, and this one's fourth turn- one's a tragedy. A, yeah, tragedy romance. Bollocks. So tragedy and execution. I'm not saying that as a genre. Oh no, yeah, I know. But it still works. See, yeah, anyway, uh, after the meal, they go over to the lawyer's house for some fucking reason. Instead of going back to Sam. You know, your boyfriend. Whatever. Um, and instead of kind of coaxing Lisa into giving the last wish, which they're literally about what we're half an hour into the film yeah 32 minutes yeah. to be exact i did check fucking hell 
Okay, so 32 minutes into the film, you are literally waiting for the last wish to be done. You've got, still got an hour left of this fucking film. You're like, okay. The literal subtitle of this film is uh, The Prophecy Fulfilled. You're like, okay, hell on earth is coming. We're fucking ready. Let's do this. So, instead of coaxing her to make this last wish, he's kind of like, nah, I'm just going to see if she loves me. Decides to do as the three gin stooges appear to him and say, why haven't you done the last wish? And he says, I'll deal with it eventually. Leave it to me. Uh, At which point, I don't think they spawn in the Archangel Michael. Right, so as as he's walking away, she whispers to herself, I wish I could fall in love with the real you. And then I think it kind of Ah, hinted that, like, okay, now this is where he's trying to get her to fall in love. And then that's when the three gin stooges kind of explain, okay, just do it. Just fucking magic her into falling in love with you. We'll fucking start this invasion shit. We'll be done. And then he's like, no, I need to get her to fall in love with me. I can't magic that. She needs to fall in love with me as a gin, not me as this Stephen dude. Um, and then they, the three gin stooge dickheads are like, um, oh, but if you don't hurry up, they've sent a hunter to come fuck you up. That's when the shit effect of mm, this fucking statue turns into a person with a sword. Yeah, it's a blue light beam. So like um, Star Trek uh, teleportation beam. But worse. So much worse. And we get possibly the most pointless plot in the entire film uh, of the Archangel, who could have been cut entirely, I believe, and uh, it wouldn't have changed anything. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. More padding. Yeah. Always fun. Um, so, you find out that Lisa runs a lingerie shop with a friend. Yeah, and while having, well, 10 million, 5 million, a few million, she decides to continue working there. Yeah, instead of franchising it and whatnot, she's just like, nah, I'm just going to keep it the one store and fuck them. Or just hiring someone else to do a job for her. Yeah. Retiring. Yeah, Stephen turns up at the store, the gin, as Stephen turns up at the store and flirts with her, invites her round to his house, and she accepts to go round to discuss some stuff. Meanwhile, there's her best friend, uh, who also works at the store, who I've seen it occasionally in different films over time. It's a little trope that's frankly racist. The sassy black slut. Uh, You'd be surprised how often it comes up. Mm -hmm. The best friend who's usually black and always a slut, uh, who in this film dies asking to be fucked harder by a man she doesn't know, going to her deepest sexual desires with a man she doesn't know, and uh, ends up wishing that she could be fucked harder. Yeah. uh, Because she's that much of a slut. It's, yeah, 
But honestly, there's like 90% of this film that could literally be cut and it would still make the same story, just shorter. So yeah, the Jin uh, has Lisa around at his place. They have some wine together. They get to know each other. Lisa, very again, reminiscent of the room here. She goes to romantically entangle with him and then when he says I want to romantically entangle with you he says sorry was that what you were trying to do I'll have none of that sir so Stephen realises he's out of his depth the gin realises out of his depth and decides to get love advice from uh, Lisa's slut guru friend uh-huh. and the slutty friend gives slutty advice and tells the guy to sleep with Lisa because she hasn't been uh given it to for three solid years at which point is this it's just one of two wishes that directly lead to a death that the djinn doesn't just cause that the djinn doesn't kill just because he can mm-hmm. the girl uh starts talking about the extremes of pleasures and pain which is bizarrely reminiscent of hellraiser kind of a uh kind of a slaneshi principle there and I can't remember the exact wording she uses, but she says, I wish I could be fucked like that when the guy talks about getting done hard and fast. Mm-hmm. And then she feels the utmost of pleasure and pain as she dies on the wall, getting literally fucked up to the ceiling. Yeah, by a ghost or something. Because, yeah. The gin then goes to a strip club. Can't quite remember why. I think I don't know if it was to learn about sex or to try to yeah, he, convince he, Sam he, to sleep with someone. It's pretty much both in the same scene. He goes up there and orders a drink where he talks to the fucking barman. And he's like, oh, do you think she's hot? One of the strippers on the stage. And the guy is like, oh, I'd, I'd give everything to be a pimple on that girl's ass or some shit. Yeah, I'd give my soul to be a pimple on that girl's ass. Yeah. And then, uh, oh, that was it. Yeah, I'd sell my soul to be a pimple on that girl's ass. And he's like, done. And then he's like, I hope you enjoyed the view, buddy. Looking at the woman's ass. You don't see him like a, uh, a face on her ass. That would be fucking great. But At which point Sam arrives in and uh, Stephen tries to get Sam to sleep with the girl. Yeah, he's like, I'll, says, I'll, I'll, you want to sleep? Hey, you want to have sex with her? I'll pay for it. Don't worry about it. And then, uh, like, they try to hedge in that Sam's starting to get feelings back for Lisa because he's made a statue of her, of the same piece of shit uh, Titanic drawing that he did in the first couple of minutes of the film. He basically makes it into a statue now. And that's like... I presume he's got his libido back, so now he's actually able to sleep with her and he can feel love again. Yeah, but... Apparently, he's like, as soon as she gets back, he's like, oh, you can go fuck yourself anyway. But whatever. And then it cuts to... I don't think it's... I think it's just called Hunter. The Hunter. So the Hunter turns up at Lisa's, like, lingerie shop. And someone else is manning the till. And he starts, like, throwing his way around, looking through the changing rooms and all that. Uh, the woman calls the police because obviously there's a fucking weirdo walking about, throwing shit about. And then he just whips out a sword, chops off her head and then fucks her. 
could be cut almost entirely. Yep. To the point where I barely think I even <laughs> wrote about it. <laughs> anyway, no. Uh, oh, I did say, yeah, one of the worst decapitation effects I think I've seen in film. Uh, blood with the viscosity of five-month-old syrup. Yep. So, a bit... I don't think I can really yet say how ridiculous it is that a being that's been around for thousands upon thousands of years and knows every mortal's desire, every mortal's desire has been given wishes forever, can't get laid by one girl, can't get one girl to love him. You'd think that that guy should be the most charismatic, most people-pleasing person in the world. Genies are renowned for being really intelligent and really... uh, manipulative yeah really charismatic but this guy is brain dead Uh, as we find when he goes up to one of the girls there one of the dancers tries to put his hand towards her one of the bouncers comes up and said you know man that's a good way to lose a hand and the bouncer ends up taking the gin out the back kicks the shit out of him uh, until the bouncer says i'd really love to fight you uh, fairly which up until this point in both the third and the fourth film the djinn has shown no restraint against anyone he's shown that he's fully capable of using his full strength against everyone and anyone Yeah, regardless of whether they wish or not even with just like Michael uh, the angel Michael he could beat the shit out of him regardless of any wish stuff with some friends in the last one. Yep. He could do what he wanted. He'd grab you by the neck, do anything. But this bouncer apparently, too much room to handle up until this wish. And then if the fights in the last one weren't bad enough, where there was a little bit of shading, occasionally there was some cover against the costumes. This is pure, this is pure broad daylight. You see everything. Mm-hmm. You see the entirety of the costume, which is dreadful. You see the choreography, which is terrible. Uh, the bouncer ends up getting impaled on a spike from a fence, but you don't care because the other one's wearing a Power Ranger villain costume. There's no getting around it. Yeah. And then it cuts back to uh, Lisa driving down the street where this hunter is literally just standing in the center of the road sword in hand and she sticks her head out of the car like hey I could have almost ran over you and he's like yeah I'm going to kill you and then she starts reversing crashes and then the djinn just appears and he's like don't worry you run away I'll deal with this and then he rips off like a really flimsy looking stick and starts like I wouldn't even say juggling it between two hands. It's like really shit just turning it over and in his hand. Like he's literally just passing it from one hand to the other, thinking that's an impressive like flourish against a dude with a fucking giant broadsword. And yeah, it needs to be said that the dude with the stick wins. Yep. Obviously. Dude with the broadsword dies. Uh the angel's dead, doesn't come up ever again. Could have been cut entirely. Yep. After this, we get a two-minute-long sex scene, which I believe is just a dream. 
between the gin and... No, it's not. Or is it natural sex scene? It's natural okay, thing. Yeah, a two-minute-long sex scene between Lisa and the gin uh, in Stephen, where it looks like the gin stooges try to get involved. Yeah. Just it, hands come out. Just hands way. appear behind them, and it's like they're trying to touch her back for some reason. And then that's it. Like, he yeah. spaffs. She falls to one side like, yeah, that was great. And then he's like, yeah, but seriously, do you love me? Do you love me for who I am? Like, no. Literally no point in this film has she shown that she loves you. She literally just wanted to get laid at this point. That's it. Yeah, it says love's more than just sex, which is where I think the message they were trying to push forward comes in. And then there's an ending... I'm going to slap myself for saying it, but reminiscent of Hellraiser, where the house kind of turns into this uh, evil, creepy funhouse. Yeah. Where things comes out, things come out the wall, uh, creatures scare her off and chase her around. Eventually, she falls into a black pit, which lands her back on her bed. At which point, Sam comes back. He has a gun in his hand. Comes back to fight the gin. Has a gun in his hand. Uh, the djinn starts transforming. First it transforms into Stephen, and Sam shoots it quite happily. Yeah. Fair enough. Uh, transforms into Sam. Sam hesitates for a split second, then shoots it. Turns into Lisa. For one, I presume that the djinn needed faces to turn into people, and that's why it took the faces. Yeah. But it seems it doesn't need that at all. And can just flick through different bodies. I genuinely think that the people in that are, that were actually making this film were like, we need something to make them kind of like hesitate, or we need them to like have this specific ending in mind. So what can we do? Fuck it, let's just have them turn into themselves. Turns into Lisa. Sam starts hesitating, despite the fact that Lisa is standing next to the twat. Yeah. And telling him, shoot her, it's not me, just shoot it. Yeah, I was shouting that at the fucking TV when I was watching it. I was like, just shoot her. She's literally shouting, shoot her. Yeah, eventually he does shoot her. Yeah. And uh, obviously we've seen now that bullets don't hurt the gin whatsoever. And so Sam... Uh, says, oh, you know, I've got a wish. You said, offer me a wish. Don't know why the gin does that. Because it could backfire quite fucking easily, but hey-ho. I think it's... it. You said it earlier for the one uh, for the gin that was in one. Maybe the maybe the gin's just like, yeah, I can beat your ass no matter what anyway, so it doesn't really fucking matter. That's fair. But yeah. this one, it's shown that it cannot beat fucking anything. It could barely beat a bouncer in the fucking alleyway. Yeah, the gin, gin offers the wish, and Sam wishes to have something that can kill the gin. Uh, he gets a sword, same one I think as the sword that the archangel had. Yep. Uh, and then, obviously, he's losing his soul. Doesn't have the ability to fight now, so he's quite flaccid, for lack of a better term. Pretty much flopping about on the ground, and the gin starts laughing at him. Uh, he falls on the ground can't do anything sword ready the gin starts flicking through his body and stevens to try to get lisa over onto his side and then to cut a long story short because i don't give a shit the gin stabs sam 
and kind of throws him to one side. And then what the djinn turns back to Lisa, kind of like, look, you can love me now. He's dealt with blah, 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 blah. Sam kind of half stands back up with his back pointed at him. So the, the blade is pointing towards him. And then Lisa just pushes him. Apparently with enough force to impale him on a sword. Yeah, kind of shish-kebabbed. Yeah. Along with the other Sam. And it pretty much ends there. Cut straight to black in what I'm sure is seen by millions as the most tragic story of 2001. I would say it's probably the most painless ending that we could have had. At least it was like, it's over, now you can leave. It's fine, you can turn this off. Yeah, without a doubt, one of the worst films I've ever seen. It was. It had no positive qualities. I, I, I like to judge films less on their bad elements and more on their lack of good elements. Mm-hmm. Which is why the, why the uh, sequel of the modern Hills of Eyes I rate so badly is it wasn't incompetent per se, it was just so lacking in any creativity or interest that it lost everything with me. Which is why I reckon that the fourth film is worse than the third one. See, more ambitious, maybe in plot. Yeah, but I prefer. Uh, I don't want to say I prefer. I think the fourth one's worse. We're going to go purely negative on this basis. We're talking levels of shit. See, it was a shit film, same as the third one for me. But for me, when I came out of one and two, and three was like, oh, the. The djinn can really just ignore wishes and just fuck you up anyway. I was like, okay, that throws me out of everything that this film or these films have been building me up for. And then four kind of quickly reverted back to, oh, no, 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 no. Seriously, though, uh, he kind of just manipulates people into doing things that he wants. He still kind of fights a fucking hunter angel thing. Really, it's still kind of manipulative in stuff like that. Yeah, for me, it just wasn't enough Yeah, to get away from the acting, the effects, the camera work. And the third one, at the very least, there are these simple pleasures I can enjoy. They both have gratuitous nudity throughout the entirety of it, mm-hmm. which, yeah, See, <laughs> whatever does you. Don't get, me, don't get me wrong, they're still shit films, both of them. They are e- like equally shit films, but at least it's... For me, at least the third one kind of stayed the realm of the actual films or where they were going in that universe sort of thing. Uh, yeah, so I think we can both agree, though, don't watch the third or fourth film. Yeah, easily. Don't Do not subject yourself to this torture. Second film, you reckon that's worth watching for the average person? Yeah, I'd, 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 genuinely I'd say watch one and two because those two are the best ones and then just ignore that three and four were ever made I don't think they're underrated I think Wishmaster 1 it's not just a good film not a watchable, I think it's great I mean it's that cheesy horror of I said, the child's play, the puppet master that you rarely see done right uh, it's done amazingly I'm in a different mindset of okay you think it's amazing and whatnot. I think it's literally completely average. Like, if it was on TV, I wouldn't go to look for it. But if it came on, I wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to turn over. I'd still enjoy the watch, but it wasn't anything that I'd personally go out to in watch myself, if you know what I mean. 
before you watch these, I'd say rather than these, I'd watch something like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, which I think does scratch the same itch of that horror cheesiness. Mm-hmm. It does it slightly better with Robert Englund, who does an amazing job, and it's just it's better shot, but I, it's so creative how they uh, pull off a lot of the kills, and you don't know quite where it's going to go, and as I said, Andrew Dervov is, I think, iconic at this point as an actor in this role. Not of the level of the Michaels, the Jasons, and the Freddies, but of the Chuckies. That kind of level of, yeah. Yeah. He is, he is just exceptionally good. If you're going to watch, if you're wondering about whether you should watch it or not, just go on Google, type in Wishmaster Andrew Dervov Best Of, watch the first minute, and decide off that. If you fucking hate it, don't watch it. If you love it, then you're going to love the film. Thanks for listening. And see you next time. We're going to try to stick to the two-week schedule that we completely failed to do before. So we will be back in two weeks' time on Monday. Yep. See you then. See ya. Bye.